All right, welcome to another episode of Inappropriate Earl. And uh, of course, I get excited about every guest I have. But uh, today's guest is, uh, I'm a little starstruck, to be honest with you, because as a child of the 80s, uh, I love the Superman movies. And, uh, you know, the villains they always had were great. But uh, there was one villain to me that stood out because he was literally larger than life. And uh, I feel weird saying this, but I hated him as a kid because he was so menacing. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I thought, I want to see if I can get him on this podcast. And then I saw that he was a very established, uh, heavy world-class heavyweight boxer. And I was like, wow, I have to find him. And he was on Twitter, and he's been incredibly nice to come down and i am very honored and humbled to introduce my fans to the great jack o'halloran how you doing good afternoon no i'm i i, I don't get starstruck jack around many people but uh superman 2 to me was uh such an iconic film and i know you were in the first one as well uh, and it's thank you very much for coming. I, I really yeah, no, it's my pleasure. We, you know, we. I'm glad you enjoyed the films. We had a tremendous amount of fun making them. You know, it's a, it's a long, drawn out haul, but uh, you know, we we accomplished something in those films that uh, we set some precedents in filmmaking uh, with the flying shots, and people couldn't believe how we flew under bridges and around things and. Uh, how we uh, did that on wires, but it wasn't all done on wires. And we broke some technology rules by shooting Vista Vision on Vista Vision. And it was, uh, it was clever. I mean, they, it was long and tedious to do it, but boy, it sure came out terrific, you know? I mean, for the time, you know, there was no CGI. Yeah, no, the fight scenes were brilliant. You know, they just, uh, it, it, it all came out really well. There was, the, the, the only place where we really, was a, a wire tedious job was when we flew into the Daily Planet. That was done on a soundstage where we fly into the windows there. So we flew across the soundstage. It was kind of, it was kind of fun. Yeah. And but you we, were so such a big man that uh, I imagine stunts for you that there, there were no stunt doubles. Well, I did. I like doing my own stuff. You know, it uh, it was uh, a lot of. I don't know. I guess I just. Being an athlete and uh, being a street guy, you know, it just it was just came kind of natural, you know. To uh, and there's not anything really that you know the 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 thing with the flying shots is it was just it was long and tedious, you know, and the right. positions that you had to lie in a mold and you're arching your back and stuff and you're holding yourself and you know with the when we used the uh, wires, we had harnesses that it took them a while before they finally got the proper harness so that it wasn't cutting people's ribs and stuff like that. But uh, it, it all worked out, you know, at the end of the day. It was, oh, it's... Uh, and, we, and it was a great cast. I oh. mean, you couldn't get a better group of people to work with. We had a lot of fun. I mean, the, Brando was brilliant. Hackman's brilliant. Uh Turn Stamp is a brilliant actor. Sarah's wonderful. Uh, Margot's crazier than hell, and she was great. And Valerie Perrine, the same thing. So having uh, – and, and Mark McClure was brilliant as Jimmy Olsen. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it just 
it worked. And when you do something where you're working for a few years with the same people, you become like a family, you know, and it, and it works out pretty well. It was a little disappointing that, um, that they uh, didn't allow Donner to finish two because I think if they did, he would have done three and four. It would have been a much better franchise, you know. Uh, and he was really into Superman, and he still does the Superman comics. Right. So it's uh, and him and Mankiewicz were just they lived, eat, and slept it. And you know, for them to, but that's the soul kind. You know, they it was all about money. Yeah, because uh, I don't think people realize that uh, Superman two was you know Donner was Donner shot eighty six percent of it. And uh, we, when when we stopped, they they made. In fact, he got. We were doing both films together, and he got so much into doing two that they had to tell him to stop because they needed to release one. So he stopped. But while we were filming, we Richard Lester was visiting the set, and there was a lot of scuttlebutt talk and. Uh, they uh, they owed him a picture, and uh, they figured they could you know they they're, they're money guys and they just looking to take as much money out of something as they could. And they weren't really thinking about the, the the Superman base and how how big it really was in this country and what a, a an effect it would have. You know, uh, they're looking at uh, cash kaching kaching and. Uh, and Lester came on board. I mean, it needed for Christopher to stand up because Hackman never came back, yeah. and uh, I probably wouldn't have went back. You know, I was I was I was debating to go back, but uh, there was stuff that we it would have been very difficult for them to finish had I not gone back. Almost the Hackman stuff was shot, um, so and the things that they used, they had a stunt double that they only shot him from behind for some of the Hackman stuff that he wasn't there. Uh, but they used a lot of Donner's footage. But Lester had to reshoot more than 50% of the film to get his name put on as a director. Right. So he wound up shooting about 80%. But, you know, he um, if you ever saw, if you've seen the Donner cut, the Donner cut's much better. And there's about, I think, uh, 40 extra minutes uh, that weren't in the theatrical release. Well, it's, it's the Richard Donner cut. Right. And it's uh, it's really, I mean, it's just sad. You could see that if he had the opportunity to do the ending the way he wanted, and and some of the, and if, he, you know, if he'd had the, the, the opportunity to do the film, it would have been a much, it was a good film as it was, but it would have been much better. Because you, uh, it, it was great to get three bad guys, or two and a girl. Uh, well, we did that when they when they came to me to do it. We were doing uh, March or Die down in uh, in Morocco and Spain, and uh, and the crew was all English guys. And uh, they said Richard Donner wants to talk to you, and Hackman was going up to see him because he was doing March or Die with me. We we did a picture of March or Die was with. Uh, Hackman and Catherine Deneuve and Max and Cedar, Ian Holm. It's a great little Foreign Legion film, actually. And so when he, I went up to London, we had a break, and I went up to London to talk to him, and he said, would you consider doing this role? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, 
what if you did it as a mute? And I said, I would like to do that. I would like to do it as a mute. He said, really? I said, yeah, because Jackie Gleason had done a picture called Gigo and won an Oscar for it. And he played a deaf, dumb mute. And it was intriguing how he did the facials and the body language. And I said, boy, if I ever got a shot to do a picture where I could just do facial and body language and stuff, you know? And in the Superman script, you know, you had <clears throat> Terrence was General Zod, who was this vicious, you know, killing general. <laughs> and then you had Sarah, who was uh, a man-eater. Yes. Uh, so someone had to relate to the kids, you know? And I felt, wow, what a neat, what a neat opportunity to take this brutish guy and to um, do him with this childlike mannerism. And Donner said, wow, can you, you think you could do that? I said, that, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this brutish animal that everybody's scared to death of uh, because of the power and awesomeness of him and, and I'll do him in a childlike manner so that children, like I'll try to talk, I'll try to get my eyes to work like a child, learning how to walk and talk. So it would relate to, although it would be menacing at first, the children will relate to the character because he's childlike. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I was probably uh, 12 years old at the time, and I was just, I was petrified of you, but there was something endearing about you. That's what made it work. Yeah, it worked very well, and we got away with it, you know? It's just, uh, so to go back and finish two, they would have had a hard time finding someone to capture that same deal, I think, you know, so it, it worked out pretty well, but, you know, I was kind of, uh, I would have much rather seen Donner come back and finish it. Right. And so would Margo and a few others, but they should have stood up all of them and said, you know what, either Donner or we don't go to work. And, and, and they would have been forced to bring him back. Right. Um, but you know, when they, they said it was about money and all, that's all bull. That's, that's a bunch of hogwash. He just, he was perfectionist at what he did. And, and they, they said, well, he went way over on Superman 1, but he didn't go way over. They wanted him to shoot 1 and 2 together. And he got caught up, too. It was a great, was a great film, too. It was, a, it was kind of a neat movie. I got to be honest with you. I like 2 better. Oh, so did I. Much better. Uh, and 1 was uh, and one's unbelievable. An awesome picture. No, 1's an awesome. Well, but, you know, it, you'll never get another Christopher Reeve. I mean, he, I, I, Christopher was uh, a pain in the butt. And, and stuff like that in a way because he was, I mean, he, he's, he was a 26-year-old with a 16-year-old brain, but, and, and it was his first real major role, you know? And when he came to audition for it, he was like 170 pounds. And the guy that, um, the bodybuilder, the guy that played Darth Vader, um, was going to work him out to build him up. And I said, you know, don't bulk him, man. Do a do a Steve Reeves with him. Do cuts. You know, Steve Reeves was like 190-some pounds when he won Mr. America. I said, just, just do cuts because he wouldn't – Christopher, his ego, he wouldn't wear no shield underneath. He wanted to be all, you know, himself right. and stuff. So better that they built him up with cuts and everything to make the definition. And it worked out very well, you know. He gained about 20-some, 30 pounds, and, he, and it, uh, you know, it worked. I mean, he was a great – Clark Kent Superman. Oh, he was. He was. You know, but he couldn't. I mean, he was. He played the role all the time. He was always 
Clark Kent and Superman. Right. He just never, he couldn't take himself out of, I mean, walking in and out of character was difficult for him. But, you know, for me, myself, you know, you, you know what you're going to do on screen. You get on screen, you do it, you come off, you start telling jokes and have a good time. I mean, that's what life is about. Oh, absolutely. Some people get caught up in, you know, into this uh, method acting, which uh, is great. Method acting is a terrific manner of acting, but you don't need to carry it around with you 24 hours a day. Well, I imagine you would go insane. Well, I just don't. I, I, for me, you know, I, I, my teacher in the industry was Robert Mitchum. Oh, he's... and uh, when I did Farewell, My Lovely, uh, it was the first picture I ever did, and. They had come to me to do several pictures prior to that when I was boxing. Uh, they wanted me to do The Great White Hope. And uh, I had just knocked out Manuel Ramos here in the forum in 1968. And it was the first time he was ever knocked off his feet. And he, were, he was in line for a title shot. And I knocked him out in the seventh round here. And <laughs> I remember George Fernandez said to me, you came here in shape. And I had just fought. 11 days before that in South Africa, in Johannesburg. So I was in great shape because I went down there and I was off the streets for 30 days. I got in shape in South Africa and I came out to LA and I was in blinding shape. And, and I said, uh, not only am I in shape, I'm gonna knock this bum out. He said, you can't do that, you can't do that. We got a title fight set for him. I said, well, guess what? And uh, Emmanuel was a tough guy. He was a, he was a tough, tough, was one of the toughest Mexican heavyweights that ever got in the ring that I ever saw. And he was a left hooker and he could fight. He was tough. He was a tough kid. Well, you, uh, you know, that's what I think a lot of people don't know about you. Uh, you know, semi-casual fans of the Superman films is that you were an incredibly accomplished heavyweight boxer. Well, you know, it, it's amazing when you get, I, I started out playing football. I could believe that. <laughs> and I, um, uh, I was up with the Jets, but when I played, you couldn't, you're, you had to wait for your class to graduate college. They didn't have any, any poverty deals in it. They didn't have any, you know, you could, was none of this one year of college and then go into the pros. You had to wait till your class graduated before you could play in the NFL. So I, Eubank grabbed me, would have been my sophomore year at school. And I went up and did a tryout with the Jets, uh, with Joe Eubank. Joe Namath was up there, just come up from Alabama. And uh, Eubank said, wow, man, God, for a guy who hasn't played that much college ball, we, 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 we want to keep you, but we can't sign you for two years. So I, I played on what they called, a, it was like in baseball, like a farm team. You know, they had right. a, a league on the East Coast of semi-professional teams and we played three games a week so you could keep your levels up and stuff, you know. But it was great, you know, it was, it was okay. And then when it came time to play, uh, I said, uh, you know, Philadelphia had a great young team and it was a bunch of kids I knew, a bunch of guys I knew from college that were down there. And uh, I told Eubank, I said, you know, I, and they had Sonny Jergerson and Tommy McDonald and, uh, Tommy Wudashek is a running back. And I said, I'd really like to get down and, and give a shot at Philadelphia. And he said, well, we'd love to keep you up here. But that means I wasn't signing any official contract. So he said, if it doesn't work out, you got a home here, come back, you know. So I went down to Philly and uh, they hired this guy, Joe Q. Harrick. 
to coach the, the kid that bought the team, Jerry Wong, was a super young man. Golly, I mean, he could have done so much for Philly if he if he would have listened to certain people. But they talked him into this guy Joe Kuharik as a coach, and I watched this guy trade a championship football team away. I mean, how do you trade Sonny Jurgensen and Tommy McDonald? And then he traded uh, Maxi Bond and some people out here. He sent them to L.A. for a running back. And he uh, traded Lyman. He traded the four of the best young guards. Uh, Randy Beisler went to San Francisco. He was all pro six years in a row. And uh, Bruce Van Dyke went to Pittsburgh. He was all pro in, in Pittsburgh. These all guys were in their first year. They came. Randy was an All-American from, from Iowa and uh, Idaho. And uh, uh, Bruce came from Missouri. and. I mean, they, there was just some great ball players, and and he just kept trading people, trading them left, right, and sideways. I said, "Wow, man!" So I, we came out of the meeting one day, uh, and Timmy Brown and I were walking down. You remember Timmy Brown? Of course, he's a great running back. And Timmy and I came out of a meeting, and Q Herrick walked right by us, and I said, "Hey, Joe," and he turned. Around, oh, I said, "You know what, man?" I think it's this. I take this team and stick it up your nose, man. I said something. Did like you that. say? Oh, you can say that uh, on there. I, I just said, stick, take this and stick it up your ass, man. You're forced. And Timmy Brown said, "Why are you out of trade me?" <laughs> so I and I and I walked out and I left football and uh, had some people in Philadelphia that said, uh, "Well, God, man, you left football. What are you going to do? Are you going to go up to the Jets?" And I said, "And Ali had just won the title. I just beat Liston." And I said. Um, I could knock him out. And some people said, when I was a tough kid in the street, and they said, wow, what a great idea. You know, so they, next thing I know, I wound up in the gym and I was like 200 and at the time I was playing ball. So I was like 275, 280, like I am now. And I had to, they put me on this, I went down to 226 and God, I was shaking. My first fight, I was, I said, wow, man, this is, you know, crackers. But, I couldn't box amateur because I was already a pro. Right. Like today, you could. Today, you could be amateur and pro together. You know, so what, then those days you couldn't. So my first pro, I was a, my first fight was a professional, and uh, the um, and I and I and I got lucky in my career with some of the things I did, but I was too busy uh, being a hooligan and uh, you know, I had a very famous father, which is what I wrote my book about. And, and I was more or less following his footsteps uh, in a lot of things. And uh, and boxing was a day job, you know, and I should have took it a lot more serious than I did. And then I found that I had this disease called acromegalia, which is a tumor of the pituitary gland. And it just, you know, I remember when I went in to finally get it fixed in the 70s. And the guy said to me, you do what for a living? I said, I'm professional. He said, how? How can you possibly get in the ring? And my jaw was out of line because it had grown on one side and, and my bite was not really, and they just couldn't figure out. So I, you know, I, and I would fight anybody on a day's notice. I see, your boxing card's amazing. Oh, I mean, I'd just fight anybody, I didn't care. And it, was, it gave me a reason to go to certain towns because I was very much involved in my father's world. And um, so I, you know, when, but I, I ran off a bunch of wins, and and then when I whenever I trained and got in shape, like the Manuel Ramos fight, you know, 
and uh, and I knocked him out in the seventh round. I I beat a kid in uh, in Detroit, Alvin Blue Lewis, who was ranked number one in the world. Terry Daniels. I went to <laughs> went to Texas, Houston, Texas, to to fight Terry Daniels, who was ranked I think sixth or seventh in the world. And they were looking for a fight for Frazier. They wanted because Frazier would never even spar with me. We were in the same city, but he wouldn't forget about it. I trained more up in Boston than I did down in Philly. But when I started, I started in Philly. And so did Joe. We both started at the same time. And he, um, but he, you know, so they were looking for a fight. So they, they, they called me up and asked me if I'd fight Terry Daniels in Houston, Texas. And Lou Vescuzzi was uh, the promoter from Florida. And I went down to Houston and I got off the plane. And he said to me, you're in shape. I said, well, aren't you supposed to come to these things in condition, man? You know, it's the name of the game, isn't it? And I knocked this kid out in the third round. I just destroyed him. And uh, I'm flying back to Philadelphia and Yank Durham is, is sitting on the plane next to me. And he said, and I knew Yank pretty well. And he said, Jack, he said, uh, you know, you want to fight Frazier? I said, man, what do you ask a dumb question like that for? I said, you know, you guys won't even spar me in the ring. You, you, do I, certainly I want to fight him. He said, well, you fight one more good fighter because, and you can have the Frazier fight. And I said, uh, I'll tell you what, you name the place and the time, send me a ticket and I'll be there. He said, are you serious? I said, absolutely. You name, I don't care who you get, any fighter you want, you name the place and the time, so they called me up a week later and they said, you want to fight Cleveland Williams in Houston, Texas? I said, when? Send Did you know who he was? Oh, yeah, I knew Cleveland was, sure. Cleveland was a hell of a fighter. And they said, I said, when? He said, yep, yep. So he gave me a date and I said, fine. And thank God I was in shape, you know, because the man hit. I don't think anybody ever hit me harder than him. He, I mean, it's the only time I ever got hit in a fight where I could feel it the rest of the fight. And I mean, every time he touched me, that's why. So I, you know, he, um, we were in the third round, I think, and he hit me a left hook model. And I fell back into the corner and, I, and he came charging at me. So I thumbed him and I cuffed him and I spun him around. And I whispered in his ear, I said, Old man, you're never touching me the rest of this night. And I gave him a boxing lesson. And, uh, and then it come to the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth round. I was holding him up. I'd hit him a combination. I'd see him go to fall down. I'd just grab him and pull him into me and say, man, don't be falling down on me. We've been dancing all night, you know? Because he was, if I knocked him out, it would have put him money, pretty much put an end to his career, but he was still making money. Right. He lived in Florida, and it was after he got shot and all that stuff, and, and he was a super guy. I really liked Cleveland. So we went 10 rounds, and I knew I won the fight hands down. It was no big deal. Even though it's his hometown, I wasn't worried about it. Because I beat him handily, and uh, and they gave the they gave the Frick because of the one shot, and he hit me, and I didn't go nowhere. They gave uh, Cleveland Williams fought George Chavallo on the card, and Terry Daniels fought Frazier, <laughs> and that and no one would fight me after that for a long time. They wouldn't fight me after I fought Cleveland Williams. I mean Terry uh, after the Ramos fight either. So I, you know. Uh, just then I fought Foreman, and then I had about a four month layoff or five month layoff, which was bad for me because I, I was a gangster and I was over here and I was over there and I was all over the place. And they called me up and said, "You gonna fight George Foreman?" I said, "When?" He said, "Next, I think it was a week or ten days, something like that." I said, "Yeah, no problem." He said, "You'll take that fight?" I said, "Positively." 
And uh, I think I boxed, I trained about, sparred about two or three days or something like that. And I went up to fight him in the garden and I hit, I hit him in the second round. I almost took his head off and I just didn't follow it up. It was my own fault. And uh, George could punch and caught me a shot in the fourth round. I got off the floor right away and went. And then it's a, you see, it's great tape. You should see the fight. It's, it's pretty good tape. No, no. I mean, I. And George even said after he said, you, he said, of the top 10 people that ever hit me, you're number four that ever hit me the hardest. So, who was I knew the, he got out of the fight in a prayer. Right. Know? So it was, you know, with it, that's boxing. So it didn't affect me as much as it would have bothered other people. I, you know, it was part of the, it was part of the game. It wasn't, um, I really didn't want the, the publicity of being, uh, uh, the heavyweight championship intrigued me, but at the same time, it was making you very popular and your face all over the joint and, and I was doing other things in different places and, and didn't want to tie one and on to the other. And, you know, so I don't know, it was always in the back of my mind, I guess. I, I don't know. I, uh, um, they put me in, I've been in a couple, I'm in the California boxing hall of fame. And As you should be. New Jersey and New England and stuff. And I, um, I blew a lot of decisions where I didn't really lose. I, I beat Standard to death in, in, in Omaha, but you had to knock him out to win there. And then he came to then he came to Providence where I was living to train for the Frazier fight, and I beat his ass every day in the gym. <laughs> and we're good friends. Ronnie and I are good friends. Right. And Ronnie's a good kid, tough, tough, tough kid. I mean, he you could hit him with a with a mallet, man. He just Ronnie was a tough kid. But you know, so I, you know, and I had a lot of fights like that where you fought here or there, and you're losing decisions. And when I fought Norton. At Fort Norton, I was living in New Jersey, and I had a I had uh, a dozen indictments against me for union problems. And I remember the guy called me on the phone. He said, uh, "You want to fight uh, Ken Norton?" I said, "When?" He said, "Next week." He said, <sighs> "Yeah." He said, "You'll take the fight?" I said, "Send me the ticket." He said, "You serious?" I said, "Send me the ticket," because I wanted to get out of Jersey. All right. <laughs> Who wouldn't? I got on it. Well, I just had a lot of problems around me. So I got on a plane and went out to San Diego and uh, I trained four days and, and I gave Norton a licking and a half. I mean, it was, uh, it was, I really gave him a licking, but he caught me a shot in the third round and, and it was actually <coughs> excuse me, more of a trip or anything. I was tangled on a rope and I, and I slipped on my ass and I got up and, and I looked at him. I said, come on, baby, let's, let's play. And I busted his both eyes open, and you know we were we were having. And then ninth round, it was such a great fight that people were standing on the chair screaming. And when they rang the bell, nobody could hear it, so they rang it three times before they stopped the action. The referee got in between us and stopped it. And I was going back to my corner, and he ran across the ring and hit me behind the head. And drove me into the ring post. And and Joey Amos, the, the commissioner, come up in my corner and said, if you can't continue, you just won the fight. And I was so mad. I said, what, what are you talking about? I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> and I go out in the tenth round. I said, what am I doing, man? This kid's such a glorified hero here in San Diego. You know, if you don't knock this bum out, there's no way you're going to get. So he won a, a split decision, and, but it was a great fight. I won the town. People went crazy, so I stayed there. 
and I got in half ass shape and I knocked out a few guys and um and we got to fight uh Henry Clark. And uh Henry uh nobody wanted to fight Henry Clark. Henry was a very unorthodox, very good fighter. He could fight. And we fought a 10-round fight, and they, they gave him a decision, which really kind of angered me a bit. So we fought the next month again right away, and I fought him 12 rounds for the title and beat him handedly. And I took the California State title off him. And then I was supposed to get the Ali fight. When uh, Ali was assigned to fight Norton, I called him on the phone, and I said, uh, you, know, you owe me a fight, you bum. And he said, uh, yeah, 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 no problem. And we made a deal. I went and got a guy down in San Diego, and we were going to give him 40% of the purse. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a pretty good deal. So we were working out the, the, the semantics to it. And then he called me on the phone. He said, uh, I'll definitely give you a fight, and I'll send you a telegram. He said, uh, but you got to do me a favor. I said, what's that? He said, you're fighting my brother Rockman. And you got to get him out of boxing because he's, he's, he's like not, he's embarrassing me a little bit. And I said, Rockman Ali is your brother? He said, yeah. And I was boxing him in like five days or so. And I said, uh, okay. So I started going to the gym. So I, I uh, went down and trained a few days. And, and we were, uh, he, was, he was not a bad fighter actually, but he, would, he was very fast and he would grab you and like hold on to you. So he, so I, my trainer said it was, I think it was the ninth round. At the end of the eighth round, he said, Jack, you got to do something. They're going to steal this fight from you. That's Ali's brother. He said, you got to do something serious. I said, don't worry about it. So I went out in the ninth round, and i sitting on the middle strand. I stuck my chin out, and he took the bait. I hit him an uppercut and just picked him right up off the floor. And I came back with a left hook, and he was gone. Man. He, just, he was out like a, like a light, knocked him out, and... And I felt bad. I went back in the dressing room to see him afterward. I said, God, man. I said, uh, how are you feeling? He said, my God, you hit hard. And I said, God, you're a Muslim. What do you know about God, man? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, then I called Ali on the phone. I said, okay, done deal. When, when are we fighting? So he said, uh, we got a little bit of a problem. And uh, the people that own Norton, you know, they, he was owned by two wealthy guys, Bob Byron and owned half of La Jolla and, and a guy named Mark Rifkin who owned Coca-Cola and a bunch of stuff down in San Diego. And they went to uh, Chicago with $3 million and gave it to Muhammad and um, Herbert Muhammad and uh, Norton got the Ali fight. I mean, so there was uh, a lot of, uh, you know, boxing's always been a mysterious uh, behind-the-scenes uh shenanigans some might say so well, you know that's boxing i mean it's like like a lot of sports you, know, you guys get traded they get traded here for money they get traded there for money you know it's a it's a they i i wouldn't say so much as they fix fights as they overmatch people sometimes and stuff like that you know uh when ali fought norton the first time he really wasn't in great shape which is unusual for him but he had twisted his ankle he had a boot cast on one ankle, and his right hand was all swollen. He had a bad knuckle. And uh, and he and I spent a lot of time when he came out. Because I he and I were friends. I, I kind of really liked Rama. And he um, he 
he asked me, he said, tell me about this kid Norton. So I told him. And, you know, he, he got my vote that night because he for that night of the fight, Norton hit him in, the, I think, the third or fourth round. And Ali had had a tooth taken out of his mouth a week before the fight. And the tooth next to it, when he got hit with a fluky right hand, it cracked the tooth, which was wrapped around his jawbone, the root. And it went, cracked all the way down and broke his jawbone. And he fought the rest of the fight with that separated jaw. He couldn't open his mouth. And Freddy Pacheco wanted to stop the fight in the seventh round. And Muhammad said, you stop this fight. You ain't walking out of this building. And he, um, so he went the distance with a broken jaw. He won the fight. You know, people sort of disputed. And I, and I told him where to go to get it fixed. And I went to visit him. And uh, they gave Norton... Uh, Norton got the Duke on it, and he, <laughs> Norton came up to visit him in the hospital, and Ali gave him a heavy bag and told him to go work out because they'd be seeing each other real soon. <laughs> <laughs> he was a terrific guy. I really loved him. He was a good, he was a good guy. And then I, you know, I, I beat Alvin Blue Lewis, and uh, and I went up to his training camp to see him, and he, yeah, yeah, we'll, we're going to do something. We'll do it, I promise. And then he... I made the Bugner fight instead down in Australia where it was all about money, you know? So it just, one of those things, you know, it, uh, we were signed like four different times to fight and it just never happened. So and then when I retired and I had this sacramentalia thing fixed, um, that was in, I, I, I got, I went into the hospital, the mass general hospital and the guy did the procedure and took the tumor, they did what they call a psychotron proton deal. They bolted this machine to your head. So I had four holes in my head, two on each side, where they bolted you to a machine. And I had the procedure done. And then two days later, I uh, checked myself out of the hospital and went down to Maryland and fought a 10 round <laughs> fight with Larry Middleton, who was ranked third in the world. <laughs> You know, tough guy. Which uh, the doctor said to me, are you out of your mind? Well, I could have got killed. I mean, it was crazy. It was dumb to do. I, you know, but yeah, it's just the way I was. You know, I just, uh, I knew the promoter. He was a friend of mine. A bunch of gangsters down in Baltimore, Maryland. So I, he said, were you going to show up? I said, yeah, I'll be there. Don't worry about it. So I went down to Maryland. And, and uh, that was it. Now, you know, boxing, boxing is, is so Later on, and uh, after I got, if I was left the boxing world, they they'd already been after me to do films, and uh, I kept saying no. They asked me to do the Great White Open '68, and uh, well, it started in '67. Steve McQueen wanted me to do the Thomas Crown affair with him. He was in Boston, and we were taking care of him. And he said, "Man, you got to come to Hollywood. Boy, coming down the to set tomorrow. I want you to put you in this film. We'll get you." You know, a side card, come to Hollywood. We'll have a lot of fun, man. It'd be great. And uh, I said, nah, I don't think so. So I come out. They flew me out to do the Great White Hope, and I just knocked out Manuel Ramos. And the guy said, uh, well, we want you to quit boxing and go to Spain for six months. And, uh, all you got to do, I had Eddie Foy for put the deal together. All I had to do was sign the contract. The deal was done. And I would have played uh, Jess Willard. And... Uh, 
the guy said, well, we're going to give you like 1500 a week, which was a lot of money in those days for a you know, first time actor. And, and uh, for six months and you go down and be, you know, this would be good. It's going to be a big movie. And I said, you're going to give me how much? He said, we'll give you 1500 a week and pay all your expenses down there. And I said, First of all, I said, you're not giving me anything because I give $1,500 a week away in tips. So <laughs> second of all, you're asking me to leave boxing and go away for six months when I just knocked out the number one heavyweight in the world. You want me to just forget about it. And I said, you know, there's a guy named Jim Beatty who just retired from boxing. And he's a big, tall, white kid out of, he lives up in, uh, in Utah and he, he needs a job. I said, here's, I'll give you his phone number, call him up. He said, he, I say he's a good guy. He's got a lot, of, a lot of mouths to feed, several children. I said, so the guy looked at me, he said, you're serious? And Gambino's cousin was a trainer out here in, uh, in LA and he, he was part of setting this whole thing up. And he said, man, what are you doing? He said, just tell him, give him 10% more for me and everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. You gotta, you, we want you to, and they were trying, the people from the East Coast were trying to get me off the street and put me in the film business and stuff. So, so I, I turned it down. I said, you know, poor, poor Eddie Foy was standing outside the door sweating. Boy, he said, are you crazy? You're going to kill. You were supposed to do this movie. Da, da, da. I said, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I turned him down. I went home. And then when I retired from boxing, I got a phone call from a woman in San Diego who, uh, when I was fighting out of San Diego, I did commercials for the Clippers, the Royal Crown Cola. <laughs> and uh, and they, uh, they called her on the phone. They were looking for me to do a picture of Farewell My Lovely with Robert Mitchell. And I had a couple construction companies in New Jersey and she called me on the phone. She said, Hollywood really looking hard for you. And I said, yeah, for what? She said, starring next to Robert Mitchell in a great picture and I think you ought to, Seriously, think about it. And I never forget, I was in a, a, a bar shooting pool and I looked around and I said, you know what? I think it's time. I said, what do I got to do? So I had to go meet the director up in New York at the Sherry Netherlands. And, uh, and I walked into the room and there's like Butkus and uh, uh, Alex Karras and all these big guys, you know, that were auditioning for this role. And Dick Richards came out and he said, you're the guy, you're the guy. And I took all kind of footage and film and everything. And took and walked down to the, the elevator with me. He said, he said, you're the guy. He said, I'm telling you, you're going to do this role. I said, I said, man, are you sure? I said, it's bullshit. You get me up here for this stuff. I said, you gay or something, man? You get all these guys up here? He said, no. I said, I'm telling you. He said, this is, I'm telling you, you're going to, I'm directing this picture. You're going to do this role. I said, yeah, okay. So Sure enough, two days later, I got a phone call. Fly me out. They flew me out here to do a screen test with and Harry Dean Stanton was at the screen test. And, wow. And I did the screen test at Richard Widmark's house in Mandeville Canyon, which was Dick, where Dick Richards lived. And set up, I did the screen test, and Robert Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. And I wound up doing Farewell, My Lovely, and it uh, worked out. I mean, Mitchum was brilliant. God, what a... He just took me by the hand and walked me right through everything and, and explained certain things to me and stuff like that. And, he, and we became like father, son. He was like, he, he was a great mentor boy. And he taught me a lot about the film industry and what it was all about and everything. And, and it worked out extremely well. Farewell turned out to be a great movie. It's a classic today. 
And it's sad that the AFCO embassy didn't have the money to promote it properly. And that, uh, and I, I walked away from an Oscar in that because a supporting actor that year, they were, I was a strong candidate, but I wouldn't do the publicity and stuff. And they wanted me to do the Johnny Carson show. And I met John and Robert was part of setting it up. And I uh, met him at the polo lounge. And <laughs> he, he said, and his show was live then. It was, weren't taping, it was a live show. And he said, uh, you come on my show, you get nominated for that film. I'm telling you right now. He said, you did an amazing job and I'll pump it really big time. And he said, you, you do my show. And his show was the hottest oh. talk show in the world. And I said, I, you know, I thought about it. I said, but I, I don't think I can do your show. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'm going to come on the stage and you're going to ask me about my father and I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, what do you, I, I won't know. He said, I, he said, I won't. I said, I will give you a list of questions. I said, listen, I said, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the best investigative reporters there is. And you got Albert Anastasia's son on your stage and no one's ever allowed to talk about my father. And you're not going to ask me questions about him after Mitchum fed you all the stuff he knows. I said, give me a break. I said, you know, I, I appreciate the offer. Thank you. And, and Mitchum yelled at me the next day. He said, are you crazy? Because it's Hollywood. Who cares? You know, nobody really gave a shit. Probably would have stimulated things even more. But I never talked about that side of my life in those days. You understand? Oh, for sure. I mean, and they, um, so, you know, it just probably cost me an Oscar. But, you know, it is what it is. And then I did King Kong, which was uh, the De Laurentiis movie. And we did March of Dime. We did several pretty good films after that. And then Superman came. And uh, Superman 1, Superman 2. And, you know, and I, I got wanted to do a few films of my own. And I had written a great script about, there was a picture called The Informer. Victor McLaughlin won an Oscar for in 1935. John Ford won, picture won four Oscars. So I wrote another adaption of the book. And, uh, and it's a great script. In fact, we're getting ready to do it. After all these years, I carried, I, I turned down several offers of Paramount. And, uh, I just didn't like the, the deal that they proposed. And I, and I knew I had a great script. And I wrote the song, and Elton John recorded the song called Ballad of a Simple Man. So we changed the name of the film to Ballad of a Simple Man because everybody was upset about the name The Informer and, and because it was it won four Oscars. And, they didn't want to compare it to Ford's picture and stuff right. like that. And, and actually, it was a better picture because Ford's was very dark, and they shot it all here in L.A. And we opened up Ireland and opened the picture up to, three day, to a three-day event instead of one day and, uh, and brought them out of the Wicklow Mountains and showed Ireland and everything. It's, uh, so it, it'll work really well. And hopefully Daniel Day-Lewis and some people will get involved and we'll, we'll have a lot of fun doing it. Well, if you need a stand-up comic in it, uh, I, I know I know of a guy. Now, I have to ask you about one role in particular sure. because um, I'm a big fan of the James Bond uh, series, and uh, personally, my favorite is Roger Moore. Uh, and I always looked at you and thought, "Wow, if Richard Keel didn't I, do Jaws, Oh, no, they came to me to do it. Right. It, it's because I... Uh... They came to me first. In fact, they sat in my agent's office for four hours. 
and I was around the corner with Mitch and it was his birthday. And we were, we were, we were at the restaurant around the corner getting them loaded. And he, and, and, and they, my agent kept calling me up on the phone and saying, Jack, these people are sitting here. I said, and Robert said, who's, I said, the salt kinds are around the corner or not salt kind, the, uh, broccoli, uh, no, broccoli, no, the cubby broccoli and his son are around the corner in Meyer Michigan's office. And, uh, they, uh, want me to do this film. Uh, Moonraker, or whatever it was. I think it was a Spy Who Loved Me, and then Spy the Moon, me. Moonraker. Yeah, Spy Who Loved Me, and I said, uh, he said, did you read the script? I said, yeah. I said, I don't know. I, I don't really, you know, I'm not thrilled with doing that kind of big dumb guy like that. He said, then the hell with it. <laughs> he said, tell him to go to hell. And I and I kept telling my, I'll be right around. So I went around. I sat down, and I had already signed to do this picture, March or Die. Right. You know, which I could have gotten out of. You know, I could have gotten out of what I wanted to. Because it was Dick Richards, same guy who directed Farewell, My Lovely, and Jerry Bruckheimer. Wow. I was the beginning of Jerry Bruckheimer. He's done some things. Jerry? Oh, my God. He's come a long way. And so I, you know, I, uh, uh, Jerry's a super kid. And I, so I turned around and I, and I, uh, I went around and I talked to them and I said, you know, I've, I've committed to a picture and I don't know if you can work it out with my agent, uh, you know, all well and good. Nice meeting you. Thank you a lot. And I left. <laughs> so they, uh, Richard Keel, I turned down four pictures. Richard Keel did them all. Longest Yard? Longest Yard I turned down. Really? I turned down uh, a, a, uh, a picture I shouldn't have. I didn't. I was, well, I was doing Superman, actually, with the uh, Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, the uh, Pale Rider. Uh, yeah, and I, I should have done that. And then they, they turned down the Spy, uh, the Spy 11. Then there was a... Uh, a war picture that yeah. Richard Keel was in. Yeah, they drove me crazy to do that. I was doing Superman. I didn't know when we were going to be done, and I said I thought I was going to do uh, Ballad of a Simple Man right after Superman. So I said I don't know. I'm going to be tied up. And they said, Wow, we want you so bad. And I said, Ah, you know, go see Richard Keel. So I, he did like four or five films that I turned down, which made his career. God bless. Him. Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, I loved him in the Longest Yard, but like when you turned down the Longest Yard, did you just not like the foot, like the? I was busy, right? <laughs> you know, Bert. I had met Bert in London, and and, uh, and you know, he wanted the, and and I was just I was busy. I was doing a picture, and I said, you know, and uh, Charlie Durney came to me. and He said, "Man, oh, they want you to do this movie." I said, but "Yeah, but I'm doing." And he said, "Oh man," he, said, he wants to work with you in the worst way, and I just it just didn't. Just didn't work out. It was one of the things, you know. I, I probably could have looked at it and squeezed it in. Like I, I turned down a picture, which I'm really sorry I turned down with, with uh, that Richard Keel date, uh, the train picture with uh, uh, with Pryor and Gene Wilder. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, 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 wow. Usually, I, no, anyway, I know. It was it was it was they did it up in Canada, and they were going to let me go from King Kong because. They had to go back to New York to shoot all the stuff in New York. And we had a lull space out here before we shot the ending. And so I could have went up to Canada and done this picture with Pryor and Wilder, which I am sorry I didn't do, actually. And Paramount really wanted me to do it bad. Was it stir crazy? No, no, no. Not stir crazy. It was about the train robbery. Okay. Um, God, what's the name of it? It's actually not a bad movie. But Richard Keel did that one as well. They went to Richard Keel and 
And I should have done it because it would have probably one of the reasons why I never made the deal for Battle of the Symphony with Paramount because they were really ticked off that I didn't. They wanted me so badly to do this picture. And I should have done it. would have cemented my relationship with Paramount. And, you know, but you, you know, you do foolish things in your life. And, you know, I just, I was always a uh, do-as-you-want guy. You right. Know? I, you know, did, I always went where I wanted to do what I wanted and stuff like that, so. Well, I mean, I would imagine, like, when you turn down certain roles, you, you don't know how big or maybe the movie could be a bomb. I mean, well, you just don't know. It's very hard to, to, you know, it would be hard to have a terrible movie with uh, with Pryor and uh, Wilder in it because they had done a couple pictures that were always uh, the Great Train Robbery, I think it was called. Right. No, that was the Shang Kong. I'm going to look it up right now. I forget. Anyway, it was... Uh, uh, but, it's... Hard to turn down a picture with the two of them because it's kind of hard for them to make a, that much of a bollocks of a picture. Gene Wilder, just one of the most creative guys in the industry. What a brilliant genius he was. And Pryor was a genius. Like, well, Pryor was a fun guy. He was crazy. And that's a prime Richard Pryor, like, you know, Pryor was before Pryor. his. Uh, yeah, he was in his prime. He was, uh, and he, he was a funny guy. I mean, he was just. Well, the greatest ever. Just a, I mean, you ever meet him in person, he was the same way. Just nuts all the way across the board. Well, I mean, uh, well, I imagine, uh, like, there weren't that many actors your size. You know, it was either you or Richard, and, uh, you know, so it was... Uh, yeah, and he's actually a lot taller than that. Because he was close to seven feet, right? Oh, yeah, he's, he died of the same disease, acromegaly. That's what killed him. Right. Uh, he was an acromegalic. Now, did he get his uh, taken care of? Because it never. Yeah. Uh, no, he never did. It actually, actually wound up putting him in a wheelchair and killed him. Because I know there's. Uh, do you follow the UFC at all? UFC. The, the UFC, the mixed martial arts. You know the. Uh, no man, that's child's game. <laughs> well, there's the only reason I bring it up is there a, is a fighter named Bigfoot Silva, who had his pituitary gland taken out yeah. and. Uh, his his head's enormous. And, yeah, well, it's it's like my head. I had maxillofacial done. They set my jaw back, pinched it together and stuff. And uh, but these lobes over my eyes and stuff. And that's and my skull is a lot thicker than normal skull. My my body frame weighs sixty pounds heavier than it normally would. My bones are so dense, and that's because of the growth hormone that the, when you have acromeglia, it produces. Like where your body will produce 10% growth hormone, mine was producing 150. But did that, and I'm not trying to be funny, did that help you in boxing? Like, No, it actually hurts you because it saps you. It's supposed to take away your stamina. And I had a lot of stamina. I could, I could fight 10 rounds on my head. You know, it never bothered me. I mean, if I've trained two days. But I ran all the time. You know, I was always in half-ass shape because I, was, I ran every morning no matter what I did. Uh, I liked it because I, I was an athlete. I, I loved running. And when I went in the gym, I would train. When I, when I went to fight Alvin Blue Lewis in Detroit, I was they had suspended my boxing license out here in California for organized crime. And uh, they called me up, and the, he was supposed to fight Buster Mathis, and he, they couldn't, Mathis couldn't get a license in, in Michigan. So they, they called me on the phone, and, they, and I knew the promoter, and he said, Jack, you want to fight Alvin Blue Lewis? And I said, can I get a license? He said, yeah, I'll get you a license. I said, yeah. I said, no problem. I said, you know, 
for sure. When? Send me a ticket. And he said, you'll take the fight? I said, absolutely. So I was probably about 10 or 15 pounds heavier than I should have been, but I was in pretty good shape otherwise. And I went out to Detroit <laughs> and uh, uh, what's his name? The trainer, uh, oh God, he just passed away. Uh, not, um, oh, Lord. Famous trainer. He owned the Cronk Chip. Right, right. I want to say Emmanuel, not Emmanuel. Emmanuel Stewart. There Emmanuel Stewart came over and he sent a guy over to the gym to watch me work out. And and I and I, I skipped rope for an hour and I hit the speed bag for an hour. And then I and I was on the heavy bag for, for uh, eight or ten rounds. And the guy went back and said to Manuel, I think we've got a problem. This guy's in pretty good shape. And when, and when we had this big press conference and Billy Jean King was there because Alvin Lewis went 13 rounds with Ali in Ireland. You know, he fought Ali in Ireland. He went 13 rounds with him. And then he came back home and he beat Tony Terrell and he beat a couple other guys. They were getting ready to do another Ali fight with him. And, uh, and they, they wanted me, they wanted to fight me to put him into the next step of going against Ali again. And and, they, and we went to this press conference and Alvin Lewis said, uh, they asked him, he said, what do you think about this guy you're fighting? And he said, ah, he's another tune-up. And I got, so I grabbed the mic. I said, tune-up? I will knock your ass so flat out. I will beat you, son, like a stepchild. And his eyes got this big. And I and I uh, was so the night of the fight. I had a friend of mine, Ronnie Harris, who was uh, um, he was partners with Hedgeman Lewis. They ran the streets of Detroit. Ronnie ran Jefferson Boulevard. He was a tough, tough little kid, black kid, and he was a Olympic champion, a lightweight fighter. And I said to him, "I want you to bet every round of this fight." He said, Jack, you're fighting in Detroit, and it's his hometown. Understand that? I said, I don't care. Bet every single round. I'm going to beat this guy like a stepchild. And I did. I, I, I mean, I, I stopped hitting him in the head after the seventh round. He begged me to knock him out. And I told him, quit. I busted his ribs. I broke his elbow. I, I beat the hell out of him. I really it made me mad. He never fought again. I beat him up so bad. And and Manuel Stewart, <laughs> Manuel Stewart's mouth was just he used to. So when I got done, when I got retired from boxing, and I knew I hadn't achieved a goal that I wanted to achieve, and I, I was working out at the Goose and Gym, and I saw this kid here, Frankie Lyles, training. They just threw him out of the Cronk Gym, and they sent him out to the Goosens, um, and he was undefeated, and he was a super middleweight. And I watched him train. He was a southpaw. And I sat him down. I said, what do you want to do, kid? He said, you know, I'm out here. My promoters, my my manager's out here. And he was a record producer. And he said, said, I'd really like to try to get a title shot. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. If you come and listen to what I tell you and do everything I tell you to do, uh, in six months' time, you'll fight for the title. He said, you're serious? I said, absolutely. So I did. I took him and I moved him into my house on Mulholland Drive. And I ran him up and down Running Canyon and then steps in Santa Monica. And I got this 
and I put together a corner, Freddie Roach. That's where Freddie Roach got started. Wow. The trainer. The Wild Carp uh, yeah. Boxing Gym. Yeah. Pacquiao's Freddie, main yeah. trainer. Freddie was living in the gym at, at, at Mickey Rourke's place. Oh. Mickey Rourke had his own gym down in Santa Monica Boulevard. And Freddie was living there, and he, and he lived in Henderson, but he was over here all the time. So I brought Frankie down there, and, and uh, we put together a corner. And uh, and I took this kid, and uh, we, we fought a kid from Philadelphia, Don King was the promoter, and I had a few discussions with him and sorted that out real quick. That must have been fun. Don, Don was Don. I knew Don from Cleveland. Don, Don was a, you know, everybody thought he was this big gangster. It was all bullshit. He was, you know, he, he killed a guy who was half dead. The guy was, he kicked the guy when he was on the ground. The guy died. He was an old man. You know, and he got this reputation bullshit. You know, he was a. And he was a great promoter. He's a hustler. God bless him. You know, he's made a lot of money, robbed a lot of people, you know, but uh, he was training. He, <laughs> I, call, I called him on the phone. I said, when are you going to be in the Vegas? He said, Jack, I'll be over there next week. He said, you know, so I went over and saw him and he, he wanted to manage me when, when he just come out of prison and I was getting ready to fight. I was trying to get the Ali fight. I met him up at Ali's camp and he, Man, he said, we could do some things. Boy, I can get you great fights and all this shit. He said, you can really fight, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, get away from me, man. So I, I went and saw him in Vegas, and I said, uh, you just won the title with this kid in Philly. He said, yeah, man. He said, this kid's a nice little fighter. I said, good. I said, find the venue next month because you're fighting Frankie Lyles for the title. Jack, you can't do that to me. He said, I just, you know, I just won the title. He said, let me make some money with the kid. I said, hey. I don't want to say it was, but I said, you know, you know, you're promoting both fighters. What, how are you losing anything? I said, you understand what I'm telling you? Find a venue because you're fighting Frankie Lyles. So he calls me up a week later and he says, how about we fight in Argentina? I said, no problem. I don't care where it's at. Just get a venue together. So he figured he would, because it was so far away, he would control everything. But Argentina is 75% Italian. And a lot of my friends from Sicily live there. So we get down to Argentina and, and, and everybody made us very welcome. And, and it was, uh, it was good. You, know? <laughs> you turn the tables on them. And we, and he thought he had one, he thought he had one judge in his pocket. We had three. You know? So we win the title anyway. And Frankie defended it several times after that very successfully. Beat some good fighters, beat Michael Nunn. Beat Salier, he beat uh, he beat some good fighters. Michael Nunn, uh, w- one of the uh, Goosens, yeah. uh, and I must say, uh, R.I.P. R- R- to Dan Goosen, who uh, about a year ago. Yeah, passed. Danny was a nice guy. I, uh, I like Danny. Danny. I know Joe. Uh, Joe was a bit crackers, but you know, yeah. and the kids are, you know, I, the, I mean, the Goosen family. God bless them. They, you know, they put a lot into boxing, and they got a lot out of it. You know. Oh, uh, absolutely. For people who weren't that affluent in it you know but danny was a great hustler yeah no, hired a very wealthy girl in vegas whose father owned the hilton so it, uh, it gave him a lot of prowess as a promoter and they you know they did very well for themselves god bless him they, you know they, no, he was uh, i'm sad he's he was always very nice to me danny's so. a good guy i like danny a lot danny was a good guy. when i when i had lyle's and they they uh they, I went to see Aram about the title fight. And um, 
He said, well, I mean, Don King was the one you had to go. So I went and I sorted out with Don King. And, and uh, because the Goosens thought they had Frankie, well, I sorted that out very quickly. And, you know, just and it worked out very well. And the kid, like I said, defended his title. So I accomplished something. In six months' time, I made the kid world champion. So I have a championship ring that, that, that I earned. So, you know, it gave me another part of boxing that I wanted to fulfill, you know. So it, it worked out. But the movie business is, is, is a love of mine, and we're, we're looking to uh, – take over Culver City Studios for the next few months. And we're taking a shot at Sony. So we, uh, I've got a couple, I've written a, a great book that I'm getting ready to do a movie of. And, and I've got, it's only one of a trilogy. I'm going to write two more. What's the name of the book? Family Legacy. And they, uh, is there a website people well, can? Yeah, you can go to uh, familylegacythenovel.com and the book's on Amazon. And, uh, and it's done very well. We've uh, it's actually the book came out pretty well, and actually it's, it was they edited it a little bit too much. I thought it could have been. Which we're gonna we're gonna go back and put about four chapters in and redo it again. But I'm getting ready to do three and four. I mean two and three, and uh, we'll probably wind up doing a television series that'll make the Sopranos look like a child's game because we tell a lot of truth. And family legacy tells the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Well, that that uh, and, uh, my aunt is Ethel, so I uh, that hits home for me. Ethel so. was a super lady. Ethel is uh, your aunt. She's uh, my dad's sister. So wow, that's um, uh, oh yeah, you're from Chicago. My dad was your family. Uh, the Skakel uh, family. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, um, that's Skakel. That's who you are. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know your family. See, uh, it's, well, I, I knew your family because I was very close to Giancana. It's six degrees of separation. Oh, positively, I oh wow, that's trippy. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't even put that together. Well, you know, if if you look at John Kennedy, and we we'll do this very quickly, you know, if you were say, if you were looking at one person to blame for John Kennedy's death, yeah, yeah, right. You have to look at his father. Because it was his fault. Joe Kennedy, uh, Jack Kennedy was dying. He would not have lived out his presidential term. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah he had he a... He was dying of four diseases. Right. He had, he had Addison's disease. He had, he had AIDS. He, he really was in bad shape. Well, they used to shoot him up every day. And when he was going to Texas... I mean, everybody says, well, who was the number one cop in the country when John Kennedy died? Do you know? I don't. Bobby was the attorney right. general. Everybody thinks Hoover, but it wasn't. It was right. Bobby Kennedy. So when they, uh, when they, uh, he was going down to Texas, four people went to see Bobby. One of them, Adlai Stevenson, and said, do not let your brother go to Texas. The animosity down there is horrendous. And Bobby was his brother's second skin. Everywhere Jack went, Bobby was there. He didn't go to Texas before. He wasn't there during, and he never went afterwards. Right. And his father would have rather seen him die the way he died than die from an illness and mark the family for right. having a sick person. The same is why they put the sister 
they he lobotomized one of his daughters right. and put her in, in in an institution. She died there, and all she was was an ADD guy girl. Right. And he lobotomized her because she was acting all kind of weird. Today we call it ADD and whatever else. You know what right. I'm saying? But they didn't have the proper medications in those days, and she would go off the wall. You know, he thought she was going to disgrace the family. And Joe was. Um, he angered everybody in Texas. He first of all, H.L. Hunt gave him a ton of money when Jack was in the nomination out here for Lyndon Johnson to run on his card. And the first thing he, when Jack became president, one of the first things he did, two things that he did were really naughty. One was he made Bobby attorney general when he told everybody he was going to put him in Ireland as a diplomat of Ireland. And he made him attorney general, and he said, put all my good friends in jail, like Giancana and everybody, because he hated being under thumb. And um, if it wasn't for Sam Giancana, Jack Kennedy would have never got elected, never got nominated. Right. They gave him West Virginia and a few other places. They gave him the electoral votes. They pushed him across the border. And then he turned around and he told his son, he said, all those oil people down in Texas, impose a tax on them. They right. make too much money. And he angered a few people, you know, with that bullshit. A lot of people. Know? So it just, you know, Joe was his, uh, Joe Kennedy, you got to understand the beginning of Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy had a warehouse in Canada with the guy from New Jersey, that owned Fleischmann's liquor and stuff. And they ran, they bootlegged in the bootleg era. They brought booze into America from Canada. And he had all the scotch rights from Ireland. And his, his uh, father-in-law controlled the harbor. And he was the mayor of Boston. And he was a senator of Massachusetts. And they um, he stole a load of booze that belonged to the Purple Gang in the 20s. And the Purple Gang said, you're a dead man. If they told you you were a dead man, you were a dead man. So he went to his father-in-law. He said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Honey Fitzgerald. He said, go to Chicago and sit down with this guy in Chicago or you got a problem. He'll straighten it out for you. So he did. They, but they, the guy said, yeah, you know what? You're a great earner. Because Joe, Joe Kenny was a brilliant guy. First youngest bank president in the United States. He ran a bank in Boston, in Massachusetts. He was the youngest guy. And they said, you know what? You go home. We'll take care of the Purple Gang. But you belong to us now. Right. And he did. And they, they sent him out here. They introduced him to Hearst and everybody. And he, if it wasn't for Joe Kennedy, you wouldn't have had RKO Studios. He put together four little companies that did Westerns. Right. That created RKO. And you'll never see his name anywhere, though. And he also put together the theaters for distribution. He was a bright, bright guy. And But what he did in Chicago, there was a place in Chicago called the Hamilton Club which was like the New York Athletic Club, where it was a political st stopping ground for everybody. And they told him in 1926, America was being pressured by Europe for the return of the money that they lent this country when they started. The first bank that was ever made in America had in the $1 million from here, $9 million came from Europe. And they invested in a lot of things as the states got bigger and bigger. And they wanted a return better on their money. Well, after the First World War, we became a war-bearing country. 
And we started making artifacts and everything that were made in Europe prior to that. So Europe was a little bit ticked off saying, you know, you, you, not only are you slow paying us, but you're now stealing our industry as well. And they were starting to demand their money. So what they did was they brought Joe Kennedy out in 26 and they said, listen, here's what we'd like you to do. And he did, they, they robbed, they did a stock deal and they robbed $5 million from Pathé Newsroom in broad daylight. No one ever saw him do it. That's how clever he was. Right. So what they did, they prepped him. They said, we want to do a short sell against 30 companies in Europe. You know what a short sell is? Yeah, yes. So he said, okay. So he orchestrated this short sell. They ran it for a week. Then they were coming back the second week. They made a fortune. That's where he got all his property and everything was from this. They ran it for a week. They were coming back to do it the second week when people panicked and the run on the banks, and that's caused the crash happened. It wasn't designed to be the crash, but it just happened because people panicked. Right. Stock market was going crazy. And the second week, they cleaned house because they were the only ones sitting with a bundle of money. And they were buying stuff for a penny on a dollar. But they hurt 30 companies in Europe. And one of the families that they harmed was Blackjack Bouvier, who was married to Jackie Kennedy, right. the mother. And his family were bankers for the Rothschilds. And they bankrupt them. And they, they and the guy became an alcoholic and started drinking and he killed himself. And she never forgave Joe Kennedy for that. She groomed Jackie Kennedy to marry Jack. Right. So the the whole nine yards is like a vicious circle. Understand? Of course. And he was under thumb and he hated it. And the only money that Joe Kennedy ever, if you're from the family, you'll know this. The only money he ever put into a building is that stock building in Chicago. Right. He put the money up for that because they made him. But all the Harvard stuff, he never put a dime in those buildings. They just donated the buildings to their name and shit. Uh, Joe was Joe was just a clever guy. You know, he was a smart guy. But he uh, he made a mistake when he went after the mafia. And how he got away with that was because. And, and no one ever talks about this either. You know, when he went to, he was, after the, after the crash happened, Roosevelt said, wow, man, what a clever guy. You know what? We want to, you're going to, now the SEC, he had to rewrite, and he became ahead of the SEC. And he rewrote all the rules because they knew that the Europeans had to reinvest in this country to get their money back. And he wrote, boom, at the end of that, they said, boy, what a great job he did. Now we want you to be ambassador to London. And they said, wow, what a great job. Ambassador Joe Kennedy. Yeah, that's cool. And the other side of the street grabbed them and said, well, you're going over to Europe to be this ambassador? There's a few people we want to introduce you to. We want to tie the knot around some stuff like the Shah of Iran, who was a gangster, and a few other people over there that were gangsters. And they wanted to start focusing monies, putting it together. So they, he and the Shah of Iran created a bank, and they lent money to Hitler. And the money that they lent him, Hitler came back to the same crew, add one more guy called Khashoggi, and they sold him arms. And the United Kingdom stood up and said, whoa, man, you're the ambassador for America. You can't do that kind of shit. You've got to leave. And they kicked him out of England, but they never knew, no one ever knew exactly why. All they said was, he said that England was losing their democracy 
and he couldn't stay there any longer, so they threw him out. And because they controlled all the newspapers, and there was no television in those days. Right. You understand? So, and Hearst was was his buddy, and and also the what you call family in Indiana that owned all the newspapers. So they controlled everything. So he came back as ambassador Joe Kennedy. And he wanted his first son to be president, young Joe. Right. And he died in, well, he, when, it, when, when the crash happened, he pissed off the inner circle of Geneva. And they never forgot it. Joe Kennedy was a great pilot, his son. And they test piloted the plane that they were going to, like a kamikaze deal, that was going to go right into a munition factory in Germany and end the war. Yeah? So they wanted somebody to test pilot this plane. And he was out of the service two weeks and he was home. And they talked him into test piloting this plane and the plane blew up and they killed him. And then they scrubbed the whole deal, never came off mm -hmm. the ground. And that was his first son dead. And they, what they did, instead of killing Joe Kennedy, they made him watch his sons die. You understand? Oh, I, I do. And and I mean all three of them. And he, uh, you know, it was just uh, the apple he had to swallow. And, and so when you say who, if you were going to point a finger, who would be the one individual most involved in the death of John Kennedy, it was his father. Because he created so many enemies. He created so many enemies worldwide. We forget about Castro. There's Castro was bullshit. There's that enough was, people here who wanted to kill Castro, him. Castro, let me tell you something. The Castro thing, the, the, there was there was a CIA file called, I think, Mongoose, where they were going to assassinate Castro. The CIA were involved in it. They went to the mafia for help to assassinate him. And Bobby was running, Bobby was the boss of everything. Right. You understand? So they knew everything that was going on. And there was no, where, where the, the one thing that really ticked everybody off was the Bay of Pigs. Right. Because Joe Kennedy told his son, those soldiers don't need any bullets in their rifles. There's nothing's going to happen down there. They got killed. They got slaughtered. All those kids died in that water. And a few CIA guys that people were not happy about. So a whole band of CIA guys got kicked out of the CIA. And they became Johnson's private army. Wow. They went to work for Lyndon Johnson. You understand? Oh, and I do. The guy who was driving the car, his name was Greer. When Jack Kennedy got killed, he got shot three times. The whole Oswald thing is total bullshit. Lee Harvey Oswald was not even in the building at the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the thing went off. The guy, there was a prison right across the street. And they saw three guys in the window. And you're talking about a rifle shot at a thousand yards with wind, terrible wind, and the cars on the decline with signs and trees. And you're talking about uh, a sharpshooter. Now you ask anybody who's a, who's a, a, a sniper in a war or anything that ever handled rifles, if I'm going to shoot a rifle accurately over that distance, first of all, I have to arrest my heartbeat below 60 because your pulse is in your finger and you're on the trigger. Right. You understand? 
So to take three shots in 28 seconds ain't happening. Ain't happening. And to do it from a store-bought mail-order rifle ain't happening. And Kennedy was shot, the first time he was shot was from a cauldron. If you went down Dealey Plaza, there was a cauldron on the right side of the road that is covered up today. It's cemented. In fact, they just were down there doing a documentary a couple years ago they were going to come out with. And that cauldron was big enough for me to walk down. Right. Went right to the river. Uh, Johnny Roselli was in there. Took the first shot to hit him in the throat. When you saw him grab his throat and fold over. And they shot Conley. And Conley fell. Jack got hit in the throat and he fell on top of Conley. And then they shot him in his lower back. And they only acknowledged that in the last 10 years. That there was another shot in his lower back. And then the third shot where they say hit him behind the head, with the guy driving the car, hold that car over to the left to almost 10 miles an hour because the wind, they cut off the police motorcycle van, the driver turned this way and took one shot and hit him right here in his head. You see his back of his head come out and you see Jack go flying back. Yeah? Yeah. And she's supposed to be scraping his brain. She was trying to get out of the car and they made a deal with her right on the spot. You open your mouth and you tell anybody what you saw, your children will die. Wow. This is... uh understand. No, I do. And Greer, his son has been on that uh, talk show. What's his name? The crazy wrestler. Has oh, Jesse show. Ventura? Jesse Ventura. He's been on just because his father left him a document. His father died in Texas a few years ago. He was a CIA. He was a, a NSA guy. And he drove the car that day. Wow, I mean. He's the guy that took the shot, took the last shot that took the side of his head off. And when they did the autopsy, they just pulled the skin up over that, and they cut up, the, they said they made a mistake with the tracheometry to fix his throat, and never said anything about the bullet in his lower back. And there's no way in God's name that one bullet theory was total bullshit, that it went through Conley's wrist and all that shit. That's all, that's all puppycock. And if you ever went down in Dealey Plaza, the wind factor was horrendous. Right. Sure, it caught in a vortex. Well, the-, the wind factor was terrible, and you're talking about, and the driver of the car, if you look at the film, I have footage. I'll send it to you. Oh, I'd like to see it. That shows you the driver turn. And you see the puff of smoke, and it comes. <laughs> it was, uh, anyway, so. Wow, I was... Uh, That's how he died that day. And, gee. and they should have never, ever had him in an open car with all the animosity that was going on. He should have had a bubble car driving around in, number one. Number two, Woody Harrelson's father was a hitman for New Orleans. And he was one of the bums that came out of the train thing that got locked up. They were going to, there, there was men on that crossover bridge. No right. one should have ever been up there. And if you ever saw anything, the footage of, of, the, of the, the, the book depository, the windows were open. People were walking around. Never, ever happens when a president of the United States is coming by. Oh, of course. You understand? Never, ever happens. And, you, and it, there was just so many. It was comical. And 13 shots were fired that day. And Zabruder and the Mornchild, the Mornchild was the guy who ran Oswald. Dmornchild, Zabruder and, and Dmornchild were white Russians from Russia. Came to New York and got in the, they were in the garment district. 
They were bankrolled by Meyer Lansky, went down to Texas and opened up the garment district in Texas. You understand? The Bruder never held a camera in his life before. And he was up in the air and he, was, he had vertigo and he never took his finger off the trigger of that camera for the 28 seconds that he shot that footage. Right. And the footage was sold before he ever shot it. And I was at a party the night before at Clint Murchison Jr.'s house. And I saw them all come when they came in from Fort Worth at, at one o'clock in the morning. And, and, they, and the, uh, the banker from uh, New York, the four bankers from New York, uh, three different presidents were there. They all went into a private room with Johnson. And they knew Kennedy was dying the next day. Wow. But they did not plot it. Right. They weren't the Everybody thinks that they, what they did was they, they used. The bankers of Geneva were very clever. And they sent the guy who orchestrated the Kennedy assassination at Dealey Plaza was from Europe. The jackal. Carlos Marcel. Oh, wow. He's the guy who, and he was the guy with the umbrella in Dealey Plaza. He, it was the first thing he ever orchestrated in America. Wow. And there were 30 people there that day that had criminal records that could have been locked up. That should never have been able to be there to watch the president go by. You understand? And there's been a dozen books written about, well, this guy was in the crowd, that guy was in the crowd. But there were 13 shots fired that day. And Zabruder is, suffers from vertigo. He's up, the two women holding him up while he was shooting his footage and shots being fired all around him. He never flinched. And the born child was engaged to Jackie Kennedy, to Jackie Kennedy's mother's sister. Right. George the born child. She called him Uncle George when she was a kid, Jackie. Uh, well, I mean, this is... Uh... And her mother said, I want my money back. Well, this and is, she uh, groomed her, and when she, if you know anything about that family, you know that when they got, they lived, they lived on Bowden Street, right behind, right beside the State Building, Jack and, and Jackie. When they first got married, he was a senator. One ran around worse than the other. He paid her, Joe Kennedy gave her $10 million to stay in that marriage. Right. Wow, this is... Uh... I, I don't that's uh, I don't even know where to stop uh, this uh, you understand I know I mean this this is all stuff that keeps coming out you know it's been coming and coming and coming and coming and nobody ever talks about the affair she had with Bobby right right after Jack's death and there were pictures taken in Washington of them at the pool I mean it's just there's there's, there's so much stuff and, and it keeps coming out every year something else comes out every 10 years Something comes out, so I put it at the end of my book. That's no, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm uh, on the edge of my seat. My next question was going to be about Ron Lyle, but I don't think uh, after that story, I don't know uh, who do you think. Uh, you know, uh, Ronnie was a good kid. I liked Ronnie. Ronnie was Ronnie. Ronnie the guy got him out of jail. Who was a great guy. He owned all the uh, he owned all the digital stuff up in uh, in uh, Colorado. Oh, God, I'm trying to think of his name. Jesus. 
And he was a good guy, but they called him a gangster. He was going to run for governor, and they said, no, I don't think so. Um, he's, he's the one that got Ronnie out of jail. And you fought him after he got out of jail. Oh, yeah. I mean, I almost want to get back to the Kennedy stuff, but just I know you have to. Well, Ronnie, 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 uh, Ronnie got out of jail and he fought a little bit of amateur fights and then he went right into the pros. And they, Ronnie was well-trained, well-conditioned. Ronnie was a good kid. I liked Ronnie. He was a, a tough kid. He killed the guy that he went to jail for. Right. The guy did something. He walked right around the corner and shot him. Walked right up on the corner and shot the guy. So, <laughs> but they got him out. You know, the the, the guy that was uh, that was his name. He, he ran the communication stuff in Colorado. His first guy to put cable together. Oh wow! Now, do you think if Ron Lyle hadn't been in prison for seven years, he? Uh, uh, I don't think he would have ever fought. Oh, okay. No. Ronnie was a gangster. Ronnie, Ronnie liked the streets, you know, but he. He cleaned up and he straightened up and and then he and he wound up as a security guard at Vegas. Right, right. So they robbed him, but he didn't really get a lot of his money, you know. And he uh, he trained. He he helped me with Frankie when I sent Frankie to Vegas. He he ran him up the hills and shit over there and stuff. Oh wow. Uh, Ronnie and I were good friends. I I liked Ronnie a lot. Ronnie was a good kid, but he was street connected in Detroit. Right. But he couldn't live there. And he went back to live there at the end of his days. He died there. Because there was a great, about a 30-minute documentary on him on YouTube, and you were in it. Uh, Ronnie Ronnie was a super guy. I liked Ronnie a lot. Ronnie, I helped him in Vegas. Right. Sustain his life. You know what I'm saying? Well, thank you. People never gave a shit, you know? Right. cared about ex-fighters. Ronnie was was one of the good guys. Really was. Is that why a lot of fighters, uh, especially from that era, like once they're done, they just they're just discarded. Like, well, yeah, a lot of guys wound up with damage, you know, detached retinas and concussions, and, and nobody ever gave a damn, you know. Because I look at a, another one of my favorite fighters. I'm not sure if you know him or not. Is uh, Randall Tex Cobb? Oh, I knew Randy well. Uh, they would never let me fight Randy. Well, he was at the end of my career anyway. I would have loved to see that fight. Bit. He couldn't fight a little bit. He was a punching bag. But I mean, that's why uh, I, I mean, Randy was a nice kid. He got a college degree now. You know, he's uh, he's with a nice chick, and 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 Randy's a nice kid. He really is a nice kid. He was never a great fighter. I mean, he, he, he was lucky. Tough guy, though, right? He was a tough guy. He came in an era, they, and they handpicked a lot of fights for him. You know, I mean, it's just like Hagler. I mean, Hagler was a pimp from Newark, New Jersey, and a southpaw. And I was training in Boston was after my career was over, and I was up in Boston, and, uh, and the Petronellis asked me to come over and help them with Hagler, and I did. I taught Hagler how to fight. And he was a southpaw, and I taught him how to turn one fight southpaw one round because he was natural a right-hander. wasn't a natural southpaw, just like Frankie Lyles. Frankie Lyles was a natural right-handed guy. Right. He fought southpaw because he thought it was, you know, keep people off for more. But Hagler, it took 36 fights before Hagler got the pump to fight the way he ended his career. And he, was a, and he became a tough kid. I mean, he could fight. Oh, yeah. He had, but he had an awesome look about him. So half the people he started out fighting, he scared to death. Because he looked, he was ripped, man. He was just, you know. And the, the, the only scars he ever got on his old lady gave him, she hit him with an ashtray on top of his bald head. Well, I've been there. You know, so he's, uh, he, uh, uh, 
and I and and I and I Marvin's a good friend. He lives in Italy now. Marvin's a good kid. He's Marvin's got every dime. He's he's he he's not hurting at all. So he's all right. Now where is Tex Cobb? He's kind of fallen off because he kind of took he, your path uh, after boxing. He, he did a picture again that I turned down with Gene Hackman. Uncommon Valor. Yeah, you were supposed to be in that movie. Yeah. Now that is probably my favorite war movie. Yeah. Because I'm a Gene huge Hackman. Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman and I did two movies together. So it was a no brainer. <clears throat> and I just was didn't I didn't like the producer or the director. I forget. It. Ted Koch, uh, yeah, and that because uh, that was a great cast. Well, they, um, you know, it's, uh, and Randall's, you know, and I say God bless him. Then, you know, he's a, he's a nice kid. You know, he did one or two films, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he just couldn't get out of his own way. You know, Randy was he, like I said, he's a nice guy, and he's married to a very nice girl. And I think she pushed him. He got, I think he just got a college degree a few years ago. Good for him. Uh, last I heard, you know. Right. And and I and and Randy, I like Randy. Randy's a good kid. He's harmless. You know, he wasn't out to hurt anybody. But they robbed him. He didn't wind up with any money. Right. Like Ron Standard. You know, Ron Standard didn't wind up with any money. Right. Because I imagine back in that era, you know. Only the top guys were making great money. Well, it was an era. It was when, it was when change was happening. Ali was the first guy to really make huge money, you know. And your boxing was a whole different. I mean, guys like uh, the old champions and shit. Except Lewis. Lewis. Lewis made a lot of money because he fought so much, and he was such a great fighter. And he, uh, but he gave a lot of money away, right? Because it was in an era where taxes weren't around until the end of his career. And then all of a sudden, thank God his wife was a lawyer. You know, and they hit him with a tax bill. He almost died. I mean, Jesus. He had to go to work as a, as a greeter in the casino to pay off his tax bill. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, like. And he fought way past the time that he would have fought. He was, uh, Lewis, Lewis was, was, was a great, he put three punches together better than anybody. He, he could punch like, and he never fought him twice. Right. Schmeling will tell you about that. He never fought the guy twice. You know, he uh, he was just a smart boxing guy. He was, but he was, his problem was he couldn't adjust in the ring. He either had to train for you one way, or he was in trouble. Right. He hit so damn hard. He, he was a great puncher with both hands. It's like Josie Joe Walcott. Walcott was a, Walcott never won the title until he was thirty-eight because he he, did, he he used to quit all the time. You know, he, he had natural skills as a fighter. He was a great boxer. I mean, Walcott Ali would have been a great fight in both their primes. Oh, Walcott sure. Could fight. Walcott was a great boxer. But he, he didn't have the heart that Ali had. Right. I mean, I was, at, I was a kid. That was the first one of the first fights I ever went to. I was in Philadelphia at the Walcott Marciano fight. Oh, wow. And, and, Walcott was owned by Felix Pacquiao, who was a serious gangster in South Jersey. I mean, uh, serious. He ran boxing. He was one of the czars of boxing. Now, when you say owned, you mean like uh, basically a manager of sorts? Yeah. Well, you know, but, uh, yeah. An advisor. Yeah, he was a strong advisor. He said he was fighting... Uh, he was fighting... Uh, uh, I'll tell you a funny story about Walcott. He's He's fighting a guy called Curtis Shepard. 
in Pittsburgh. Curtis the Hatchet Shepherd was a tough, tough, tough journeyman. And he's on a plane. He's going out to Pittsburgh with, with Felix. And in those days, there weren't no, wasn't any security deal. So Felix had a gun in his pocket, of course. And, and you're sitting next to Walcott. Walcott says, though, Phil, he said, you know, he said, Phil, he said, I, I'm not feeling too well. You know, maybe we ought to postpone this fight, man. He said, you know, he said, I, I don't feel very well. He said, you know, he was, that's what he used to do, that shit, cop out of shit. Phil, he's put a gun in his ribs. He said, he said, let me tell you something, son. You don't knock this bum out in six rounds, I'll leave you in Pittsburgh. Do you understand that? Not Curtis Shepard out, I think, in the fifth or so. He got healthy all of a sudden. Because he could fight. But when he fought Marciano, he beat Marciano. If the Marciano Walcott first fight would have today, they'd have stopped it on cuts. Half right. of Marciano's fights stopped on cuts. He wouldn't have won all those fights. I mean, he he cut terrible. But he was 188 pounds and he was little and he was a he was a catcher. So he had these short little arms. And he'd get inside, and he was tenacious. He was in condition beyond belief. That's all he did, train night and day. And he was in great shape. But he never, see, he was like me. I was 23 when I tied a glove on for the first time. And I'm one of 10 heavyweights that never boxed amateur that was world-ranked. Right. Sounded like 10 of us. Yeah? And Marciano, Marciano... They barred boxing in, in Connecticut for years because of Marciano. Because his first six fights were against his brother, and they kept changing his brother's name until he got into boxing, until they got him to where he got into the fluidity of it. You understand? But he was he would hit you. I, I, I asked Ezra Charles about this, because the Charles fight, Charles had Marciano's nose split right in half. I mean, they would have stopped that fight today. And I said to Charles, what was Marciano like to fight? He said, let me tell you something. Everywhere that man hit me hurt. My arms were, were numb when him hit me on the arms and made him drop his hand. He fought, when he fought, Archie Moore told me the funniest story about him. I asked Archie, and Archie Moore was a pretty good fighter. Yeah? Oh, absolutely. Light heavyweight, heavyweight, heavyweight. And he could punch, right? So he said, and he lived in San Diego. I said to him, he squawked when I was training, and we were sitting, shoot this jazz, you know, shoot the shit. And he said to me, I asked him, I said, what, what was Marciano like, man, when you fought? He said, let me tell you something. I could punch pretty good in my day. He said, I hit this clown on the chin harder than I ever hit any man. And I, he went down. And I walked back to my corner, and I stuck the gloves out. I said, take them off. Fight's over. My trainer looked at me in the eye and said, you better look over your shoulder. And there was Marciano climbing up the ropes as they rang the bell. Climbing up the ropes. And he came out the next round and walked out and said, my ass fell out. I just lost it. Mentally. Oh, it was over. He said, <laughs> went out the next round, Marciano knocked him out. Because I've always uh, thought you know, Mike Tyson's problems. Uh, Mike Tyson was no great fighter. But I mean, like, and, and I'm asking you this, you know, I, I to me, so much of sports is mental. And uh, Mark Tyson had a great trainer in the, uh, the old man, Gus. Gus D'Amato. And what Gus did, Gus, Gus, he wore no socks. 
<laughs> he wore no robe in the ring. Right. Made him look like an animal. Made him made scared half the people to death that he fought. You understand? And he he fought a kid when he was coming up. They went ten rounds with him, and it was a questionable decision. And the kid beat the shit out of him in the street outside of a club, right? Because he was no tough guy. And he when 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 King took him, he stopped bobbing and weaving. Right. You understand? And he fought the kid from the islands, the from the Bahamas, and and, and not Trevor Burbick. Trevor Burbick. Trevor Burbick had the whole side of his face swelled up. He kept hitting them with the same punch. Tyson's face was, I mean, Burbick was catching, but he wasn't a great, great puncher. Then Tyson knocked him out in the late rounds. And he Mike could punch, he had fast hands, and he could punch. I give him that. But he didn't have the skills that people thought he had, and he didn't have the heart that people thought. That's why he bit Holyfield's ear. But like, and when he fought that kid from Cleveland, that that took the title from him, the great James Buster Douglas. Douglas could fight his whole career, but he hated boxing. His father pushed him into boxing, right? So he was always twenty pounds too heavy. I saw him fight a couple times. He had all the skills, but he just was lackadaisical. When they signed the Tyson fight. He went to Vegas, and for the first time in his whole life, he trained his ass off. Did you see him train for that fight? Oh, yeah. I called a friend of mine in Vegas. So I said, tell me what Douglas is doing. He said, Jack, he's going to knock Tyson out. And i tell you something. The reason why I knew he would is because anybody that threw a three, four-punch combination at Tyson beats him. He couldn't get away from the punches. You understand? Mm-hmm. And And... And Douglas was methodical at throwing combinations. And when he went into that fight, he was like a sixty to one underdog, and people yeah. made a fortune. I bet on, I bet at Grant. I put a Grant on his note. Oh, good for you! I said he'll beat he'll beat Tyson. Tyson will not be able to beat this guy. And and he beat him. He beat him handedly. Oh yes, he did. There's no fluke. He beat him handedly. You understand that? And. And once Tyson, once that bubble was broke, Tyson was never the same again. See, to me, and Douglas was never the same because he achieved what he wanted to achieve, yeah, t- and then he started partying again. Got twenty-four million dollars. Yeah, and he started partying again. That was he never was really. He was never the same fighter again. Right. Well, but am I wrong? Uh, I've never been in a boxing ring once, except with Joe Goose and. He said, "Earl, I want to put you in against these lightweights. See what you can do." <laughs> and these Raphael kid. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, uh, you know, they said I was one of the hardest hitters they've ever been in the ring with. So th- that's the practice session. But to me, Tyson's downfall was in the two Razor Ruddick fights where Ruddick was really the first guy to stand in there and go, I'm going to take your best shot, but I'm going to give you some too. Ruddick beat his face up a lot. But I guess my question to you is, yeah. did that mentally fuck with Tyson going, Oh, maybe people aren't afraid of me. Well, the, the, that's what I'm talking about. The kid that, that he that he won ten rounds with, and the kid kicked the shit out of him in the street in a street fight. Uh, and I, I'm trying to think of his name. Jesus, he's on Tyson's record, but he uh, not Mitch Green. Mitch Green. Mitch Blood Green. Yeah, Mitch Green. That was a hell of a fight. Have you ever seen a Mitch Green fight? No. Mitch Green against Tyson was ten round decision that that Tyson really didn't earn. 
And then they had a fight in the street afterwards, and Mitch Green beat the shit outside. I think it was by outside of a clothing yeah. store in Brooklyn or something oh, yeah. somewhere. Bunch of shit out of them. But does that affect, like, you know, uh, a, uh, especially a heavyweight? He, Tyson, Tyson was, you know, Mike's a nice kid. God bless him. You know, he, I mean, he, how does a guy $200 million rich go broke? You don't have a Jewish accountant. Well, no. He had Don King. Right. I mean, when he went to jail, and he should have went to jail for what he did, and he's lucky they bought that guy, that girl's father off because the girl's father was a vet, and he was ready to kill him because he did. I mean, it wasn't the only person he ever raped. I mean, who punches? He was married to what's her face? Robin Givens. Who punches Robin Givens in the mouth? I wouldn't want to ruin that face. He punched her in the mouth and raped her mother, you know? I mean, he just, he wasn't that, he was, you know, he he had sugar in his blood. He didn't know whether he was gay or whether he was, you know, right. he was, and he was a, a little fat kid with a bag of candy when Gus D'Amato found him. And Gus D'Amato took him in and and, and, and and made a gorilla out of him, supposed gorilla, like a facade, like a cartoon. And, and he had quick hands. I mean, Gus did the same thing with Patterson. Patterson was never a great fighter. He was Patterson was scared to death of the guys he fought. He used to wear he used to wear a, a, a makeup costume to the to the to the to the arena, so in case he lost, he could sneak out. I mean, Patterson was a trip. He would never fight me. Well, I don't blame him. And because I had too much left hand for him, you know. But he was a great. He had great hand speed, and he could punch for a guy his size. He could he could punch, and he had. But he was never he wasn't a great boxer. He didn't have boxing skills. That's why Ali, Ali beat him to death. Uh, Ali was making a mockery of him. And, you know, when you, certain guys, I mean, people ask me about Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is probably one of the greatest fighters I've seen in my time, other than Willie Pep. Ali was just unbelievable because he was an athlete. Ali would have been great at any sport. Right. And what people never knew about him is a poor guy, the reason he's in the shape he's in today was because of the insecticides at his camp. They poisoned, he was being poisoned without even realizing it and huh. broke his body down. That's I mean, a lot of people blame it uh, on the rope-a-dope style. The- ah, man, he had, they say it was Parkinson's. It's, he's got a form of Parkinson's, but the, the, the po- any normal person that poison would have killed. The insecticide that he was inhaling when he was running. Right. The guy owned the skunk farm next door to him, and they used to spray there. And he was allergic to these to the this pesticide, and it was slowly eating his body up. Wow, you understand? Yes. And he and, and, and Muhammad, when he fought Foreman, he asked me about Foreman. I told him, I said, I think he's got sickle cell, man. I said, <laughs> I think he'll tire on you. So he did that himself. He went out. He Dundee was so pissed off because he went and he had loosened those ropes. Oh Muhammad right. Did that himself. And he and he he taunted Foreman, you know. Foreman Foreman come in and, and and he and Muhammad had a great knack of moving, just enough. He could ride everything, man. You never could you could never hit him square on the chin. I think Holmes hit him more than anybody. You could never hit him square on the chin. He he rode everything, and and Foreman's winding up, gorilla punching him, and he's catching him on his body, and and, and then he pull him in. He say, "Shit, man, my wife hits harder than that." I thought they said you could fight. And he pissed Foreman off Foreman's 
but he every time Foreman missed those big swings, that takes twice as much energy out of him. Right. You understand? The punch that Ali knocked him out with, if he'd have hit him with that fun punch in the second round, wouldn't have even affected Foreman. But Foreman was exhausted when he hit him right. and dropped him. You know, and he just boom. Ali was that smart, man. He was a smart, smart guy. He put that rope with dope in there, so he was floating away from the punches and he was riding them. And Foreman was missing with these wild swings, man. Like he was trying to knock out Godzilla. You understand? Oh, yes. But that takes a lot out of a guy, when, especially if you're if you're not used to, you know. So it, it worked out for Ali just the way he wanted it to work out. He was the cleverest guy. The Spinks fight, he did, he did, he did, he said to me, I want to be champion four times. No one's ever done that before. So I'm going to do it. Do you think so it, the first. He was the, he was the, the promoter, the director, <laughs> and the actor in the Spinks fight. So let me ask you this the because uh, I cried on that first, and I'm being completely serious, the first Spinks fight. Where he lost. He should never have lost. No, Spinks couldn't beat him on his best day. But did he lose, like, I, I don't want to say on purpose, but like, because he knew the rematch would be huge money. Absolutely. And, and he, he knew he could to, beat him. And he wanted he wanted to win the title back. Because <laughs> he wanted to be the first guy to win the title three times like that. You understand? Right. I mean, he did, he did when he fought Frazier the first time, they made him a deal. If he loses the Frazier fight, it, all of his draft shit and everything went away. And, and that was all Mickey Mouse, what happened with him. You know, he was owned by a white group out of Louisville, his original contract. And they took good care of him. He drove Cadillacs and all this stuff and everything else. And, and he was, and when his contract was coming up to be resigned, they were lackadaisical about it. And Herbert Muhammad from Chicago, because his brother was a Muslim. Rockman was the Muslim. Right. And talked Muhammad into sitting down with these guys. And they scared the shit out of him when Malcolm X died. And he said when they when they they took him up and they signed him and the white group got really pissed off and they went into Louisville and they took his draft card and they made him one one A. Boom. Now yeah. he's eligible for the draft. Before that he was one Y. Which right. meant he would never be drafted. You understand? So they put they pull him up for the draft. So he goes and he says to Herbert Muhammad, he says, hey man, you know what? What's the big deal? I'll be like Joe Lewis. I'll go in the service and, and I can still fight, still be able to box. What's the problem? I can train with guys in there. I'll just be, you know, like a sports guy. And I'll do my time. And they said, uh uh. You go in that service, we'll shoot you from behind. You understand that? We're making an example. And that's what they did. Wow. And it cost him because he, and what they used to do is they would bring a rank fighter into the gym to spar with him for 10 rounds. Like it was a fight. To keep him sharp. Until they got over all that bullshit. And they made him a deal with the Frazier fight. And he, in fact, when Frazier hit him and his, and his face blew up, yeah, when he fought Norton, and I went back in the locker room to see him after the fight, and and he wouldn't let any of the press in. And I said, "Wow, man, why are you keeping these guys out?" He said, "Jack, let me tell you something. My face is all swollen because he had broken his jaw, right? 
He said, the last time my, my people, my people saw my face swollen from the Frazier fight, they cried. I don't want that to happen again. That's how much he cared about people. I mean, this guy is one of the nicest guys. I don't know if you ever met him. No. One of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. I mean, the guy is an incredible guy. He came to Frankie's fight. We fought down in, uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, let's say Bolivia. Where was he? We had a fight down there, and uh, he came. They brought him down to promote the fight. And, and, and I wait, and I was at the hotel, and I don't want to say hello to him when he came down. It was when he was first started with really bad. With, and he was, he was with the girl from his high school. Thank God. And they came out of the elevator, and I walked up, and I, you know, I just grabbed him. I said, champ, I said, man, I'm so sorry. You know, this is this happened to you. You know, somebody as great a fighter as you that wind up. He said, don't be sorry for me, man. He said, I've done everything in my life I ever wanted to do. If this is what Allah has in store for me, no problem. And I thought he was a lot worse, but he wasn't. It was that. The Parkinson's had his mouth he, like he couldn't couldn't talk fast like he right. used to, and people were firing questions at him all the time. So he'd pretend like he was asleep right. to get away from all. You understand? Because he had to show up at places, but and everybody nobody had any kindness there. They were always badgering him with questions. So, and he knew he couldn't answer as flippantly as fast as he used to because his motor syndromes weren't working that well in his mouth. And he used to go in the gym and train every day. Nobody ever knew that either, even with the Parkinson's. And he, you know, he just, he was um, he's just an amazing guy. I mean, he'd done so much for this country as a, as a representative in Russia and everywhere. I mean, as a, the guy was just, he was loved by everybody. You know, and yeah. I, I remember I remember saying to him one time, I said, hey, man, you know, what is all this jibber jabber you do, man? All this bullshit. He said, Jack, I learned that from gorgeous George, the wrestler. Oh, yeah. yeah. He said, listen to me, man. Fifty percent of the people come to see me win. Fifty percent come to see me lose. But they all come. And I laughed like hell. We were up in his training camp and, and we went. We, he and I went back into his locker room. And we closed the door and shut the press out. And we're kicking the door and punching the door like he and I were fighting in there. And we're yelling back and forth at each other. And everybody thought we were having a fight. And I was like, give me a fight, you son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, that's great. And we just, he was like, and we were laughing like hell. We're both kicking the door. People thought we were having this, this Donnybrook fight, man. He was, uh, he just, he has a great, he's, he's sharp, he's smart. And, and he could fight. Oh, absolutely. The guy can fight, man. You know, when they talk about the listing fight, you got to understand the whole listing fight deal. You know, the, 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 when he fought listing, when he was signed to fight the first time, listing went to camp, and I knew Sam Margolis and the people alone, the same people on me. He went to camp, and listing got in the greatest shape of his life. And Muhammad got the hernia. And they postponed the fight. And Liston said, you know, this is bullshit. And he never went back. He, he took his wife to camp. And Sam Margolis, who was the head of the Jewish mob in Philadelphia, who was his manager, 
his wife had a brain tumor at that time, and he was spending time in the hospital with his wife, and he was the only guy Liston ever listened to. Liston was scared shitless of him. You understand? Mm -hmm. And he never trained for the second fight. So, and Liston had a lot of dog in. Liston did not like to see his own blood at all. Who does? He didn't like to see his own blood at all. And when Ali, you know, Ali was hitting him, and the, they put the stuff on his glove, and they blinded Ali for the one round, and 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 Liston was cut over one eye, cut under his eye, and he was bleeding, and he sat on a stool, and said he threw his shoulder out, which was total bullshit. He was getting beaten, he knew it, and he couldn't do anything about it, so he quit. Wow, it's just. He that, quit, and when they fought up in Canada for this for the return fight, and he never trained again. He never trained after that. Boom, First, he was he went to the gym. Then when he they pulled it off for the hernia, and he went back up. And then when I went, he got hit. Ali could punch any man that weighs two hundred pounds or better, and throws a, with the speed that this guy did and the accuracy. And Liston was coming up, and List and Ali was coming down. He hit him right on the chin. And he went down. And, and I saw Liston fight Leotis Martin in Vegas. Yeah? And I, <laughs> Martin, Martin broke his nose and Liston started bleeding. He was swallowing blood down his throat. And the ninth round, Leotis hit him a right hand and Liston fell. And it, I was sitting ringside, this close, to where them statues are. I was here, there was Liston. And I saw him pick his head up and stick his glove up. <laughs> And looked down while they count them out. Wow. I said, You bum, you motherfucker. <laughs> you know, anyway, you know, it's just that's boxing, man. You know, there's some guys, you take a guy like Willie Pep, you know, and I said to Willie Pep, How come you and uh, what's it called had so, so many dirty fights? Sadler, Sandy Sadler. He said, Jack, same Sadler was a dirty fighter. No, when you say dirty fighter, you mean blows behind yeah, the head. Yeah, thumbing you, cuffing you. In the old days, they used to cuff you, thumb you, you know. And then it was, he said he was a dirty fighter, so I fought him back dirty. So what? That's boxing. You know, and, and Willie was an amazing fighter. Willie Pep could fight. Fast, active. <laughs> I said, if you had a guy cut on one eye, I said, I wouldn't touch it. I'd go for the other one. He said, I was that good. I didn't have to. Wow. You know, some of these old time guys were great. You're talking about an era when guys, you know, worked and boxed and trained and it was a whole different genre, man. Well, I don't get today's boxing, but. Well, a lot of them are just, they don't fight enough. Well, the heavyweights uh, they specifically. They don't fight enough. That's the problem. I mean. They don't fight. I used to fight every two weeks. Well, I saw that one uh, stretch where you fought uh, uh, Lyle. Well, I, I, so you had three fights in four months. When I first fought, when I first fought up in uh, in uh, uh, in Boston, there was a guy up there, Subway Sam Silverman. <laughs> he used to run. They used to run him and Rip Valenti. They were partners, and they ran boxing shows in Maine and all up and through the Boondocks area. So we would go up and watch the fights, and he would say to me, "You got shoes in the car, Jack." And I'd say, yeah, man. And I said, why? He said, well, I need a bout. I said, but I can't box under my name. You know, the, you know I said, Sam will get crazy. No, no, we'll just we'll give you some old name, any name. He said, I had 26 fights, 26 knockouts like that. 
Under assumed names? Under assumed names. Never on my record. So I was fighting all the time. You understand? I mean, this is your, uh, in a four-month time frame in 1971, you fought Terry Daniels in August. Cleveland Williams. Cleveland Williams in September. Yeah. Ron Lyle in November. Yeah. And uh, Charlie Harris in February. Yeah. And I'll throw the fifth fight in there because it was in March. Ken Norton. That's five fights against yeah. five great opponents in like yeah, seven I, months. I stopped Charlie Harris up in Taunton, Massachusetts. And I think the Klitschko brothers fight five times in five years. Five years. Now, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, no, it's a, it's a real... Uh, I, mean, I'm, I almost want to have you back just to talk about the Bobby Kennedy assassination, but uh, one of your losses was to Joe Bugner. I'll tell you one thing about Bobby's thing. That guy spent 30 years in jail and never killed him. What? Damn. He wasn't the guy that shot him. Damn. I, <laughs> just when I, I... I don't want to end this at all, but... Well, let's... Uh, Wait, do you have a few minutes to talk about it? Uh, uh, let me ask you the... I, I tell you what, I'll do one more boxing question, mm. and then we'll uh, almost as a teaser get into the Bobby Kennedy... Because uh, uh, <laughs> I know uh, your time is valuable, and I, I, I'm i a stand-up comic, Jack. I, I could sit here till midnight to talk to you. Um, one of your losses was to Joe Bugner, who uh, a lot of people uh, don't... Beat Bugner so bad. Let me tell you something. They... That was a Mickey Duff deal. It was supposed to be, a, we fought the headliner at uh, Albert Hall. And uh, and Terry Daniels was, I mean, uh, Terry uh, Downs was in my corner because he was the first real legitimate world champion they had out of England. He was a middleweight champion, beat Paul Pender. Right. And I had Terry in my corner and, you know, because I, I knew all the gangsters in Boston. I mean, in London. I knew the craze. I knew them all. And when I get in the ring to fight, all of a sudden I find out we're fighting an eight-round fight instead of a ten-round fight. And, and and Bugner, at the end of the eighth round, didn't even know where he was. That's how bad I beat him. Right. And the, the newspapers the next day had it printed. They said, we're embarrassed to say that Joe Bugner won a quarter of a point decision, which was unheard of. It was like 39 and a half to 39 and a quarter was the score of the fight. And they, 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 were, they were appalled that, that he won, that he right. got a decision. So, in fact, the guy that refereed the fight, Harry Gibbs, yeah, I went back and fought uh, uh, the heavyweight champ of, uh, of uh, Wales, uh, Carl Gizzi. Uh, at the Governor House. I beat McAlinden and I beat Carl Gizzy. And Carl Gizzy was a pretty good fighter, boy. And when I beat him in a decision, he, in fact, he's one of the few people that ever cut me. I had a cut over my eye in that fight. And he and Harry Gibb, the, the, the referee, said to me after the fight, he said, see, we don't steal all of them off you. <laughs> we, don't, we don't steal all the decisions, man. Well, uh, you know, just you know, boxing's been. Uh, well, it was great. You know, it was. Uh, it was. It was good. The McAlinden was a tough kid, Danny. I beat him in a golden house, and he cried. <laughs> I beat that shit out of him. Who would you say was the hardest puncher? Uh, Cleveland Williams. Oh my god! Even more than Foreman and Lyle. Oh yeah, Cleveland. I mean, Lyle hit me in the back of the head. On purpose? 
I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just it was, I was turning away from a punch. Oh, okay. And and it was I was in a corner and he nailed me right at the right spot. When I I went down like a Jesus, like you know, and they stopped the fight right away. And there's no. Could you have gotten up? I you know probably, I think so. I don't know. You know I just. Uh, uh, the foreman fight, they did the same thing. They stopped it very quickly. Uh, so they, the count seemed like, uh, but you know what? It's boxing. Foreman would never fight me again. I don't blame him. Never would fight me again. And they, uh, if you look at the tape, it was a pretty good fight. Not too bad. Do you ever come close to fighting Ernie Shavers? I know you God, didn't. Ernie Shavers wouldn't come near me. Ernie Shavers going to fight a little bit. He well, was a puncher. Right. Ernie, Ernie could punch like hell. But he was no great fighter. All right. Well, here's my last boxing. I got about five minutes on the tape. I, I definitely, if you're ever around here again, I would be beyond honored to have you back, just because we get a lot of ground to cover. Has uh, I bring up Joe Bugner just because he is the uh, reason I guess Stallone saw him fight, made the Rocky movie. Uh, Rocky movie. He's full of shit. Rocky movie, Stallone did <laughs> Farewell My Lovely with us. Right. It came out with Joe Spinell with all the crew. Oh my God. And he Joe Spinell brought brought six guys from New York to do bit parts. Jimmy Archer, Joey Archer's brother, the great fighter, Joey right. Archer. His brother Jimmy was in the movie. He was a newspaper guy that had the newspaper stand. And he Joe's at my house. Jimmy Archer stayed at my house. Joe Spinell was the uh, in the movie Rocky was the oh, yeah, uh, he was the gangster uh, yeah so, Gant uh, yeah so Stallone is 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 chatting in my ear every day and I I was the gangster from Philadelphia and Chuck Wepner was the bleeder and he would ask me and I, and I you know I, I I was I I was a street guy from Philly you understand. And I told him a lot of stories. And he kept asking me question after question after question. And I, yeah, well, I had nothing to do. We were talking after we were working and shit. And, and he was like, a, bah, 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 I'm running, doing this boxing movie, blah, 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 blah. And I, so we were, you know, I said, yeah, well, you know, so I told him all about the waterfronts of Philadelphia and, and, and the mafia and everything else in Philadelphia and shit. And then Wepner was the bleeder who, you know, took a lot of punches. Right. You understand? So he put both together and he made the movie Rocky. So you kind of had a hand in that movie. It, that's where his script came from. And he wanted to do this boxing movie. So I said to him, well, let me tell you stories about boxing, kid. So I, and I couldn't get rid of him. He was all over me, you know what I mean? But I didn't give a shit. I always, you know. Did you ever, uh, like, see him and go, hey, man. I, I, nah. What? What? He he was doing Rocky. What was it? Rocky three or something? I forget. He was he. They were casting for something, and so they said, "Go down and see him." He's at he's at the Sony Studios down there, MGM, the old MGM Studios. And I'll never forget walking in to see him. And he was standing behind a desk, and they put a platform behind the desk because he's only little shit, you know. Right. And he had lifts on, and I looked at him. I said, "Damn, son, did you grow or what?" What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I said, I know you're not that tall, Sunshine. What's the deal here? So there was a part, in the, in one of the guys in the in the gym uh, where for Rocky Two, I think it was. Right. And uh, they sent me down to see him, and, and he should have just given it to me for the hell of it. But 
he was uh, not. Nah, you know, that just is what it is. I got gotcha. you. Know. All right. Well, I could give it. I, that, I could give it that because I was the real McCoy. Rocky was never poor. Stallone was never poor. His mother was married to a wise guy in Florida. He went to private schools in Switzerland. He shit all over his poor brother, Frankie. He could have helped him a lot more than he did. Right. No, oh, absolutely. So was a pretty good voice. Oh, yeah. He, was, he, was, he recorded a couple things for the Scotty brothers, who are dear friends of mine. And, you know, so, you know, he wasn't, uh, he's not, and, and I remember when he, when they did the Rocky movie, and his poor wife, Sasha, is a, is a super lady, and he had an autistic child, and he's screwing broads in his living room. Right. And that's all bullshit, man. You know, they couldn't wait to tell everybody, oh, I just want to have some Beverly Hills, blah, 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 blah. You know, typical bullshit star shit. And, you know, God bless him. He's done well in his life, you know. Uh, but it is what it is, kid. Now, what did you think of, uh, it was all, always rumored that Ken Norton was the original choice for Apollo Creed, who, uh, of course, was played by Carl Weathers. That would have been a great idea. Do you think Stallone was afraid of getting hit by an oh, actual yeah. heavyweight? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Carl Weathers was a football player. Oh, yeah. Great build. Yeah, but Great build, but he couldn't fight a little bit. Right. right. Uh, and Norton may not have controlled himself. Right. <laughs> well, here's... Kenny, the, Kenny was a funny guy. Here's With someone of your magnitude, I like to do a, a game. Uh, I mention a name. So we'll end... Well, first of all, before we do my end game with you, uh, where would you like people to contact you? I know you're on Twitter. Yeah, and you can get me on at the, my site, uh, Family Legacy, the novel. Dot com. Yeah, they can reach me through there. No problem. And on Twitter, you uh, do you... M. Anastasia. And uh, please, uh, yeah. Jack's be, he's the best guest ever on this show. Uh, I thought we were just going to talk a little Superman 2 and boxing, and we go off and do uh, the Kennedy uh, world and... Uh, the, you got to read the book. The book's pretty good. Oh, absolutely. And please support uh, guests. Legacy is a pretty good book. That's not too shabby. Please go to that site and buy the book, support the movie. And uh, we've talked about some heavy stuff today. Uh, so I, I figured I would do a almost a word association game with you. Sure. You can only give me one word. I'm going to mention a couple uh, people from your past, mm. and then uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, it's it's going to be random names. Uh, we'll start off with Gene Hackman. Super. Muhammad Ali. Amazing individual. Amazing. Christopher Reeve. Bush. Let's see here. George Foreman. Good guy. Ken Norton. Another good guy. Ron Lyle. Super. Dan Goosen. Yeah, he was a nice fellow. You know? <laughs> Don King. Ditto. <laughs> uh, we'll go with one more. Just for, try to take for the world of boxing. Uh, Bob Arum. Good guy. Well, Mr. Alleran, it's been i'm never this uh, appreciative of someone coming down uh it's, it's been a huge honor my pleasure to yeah, have you here a lot of fun it was good
No, it was, uh, we could go another hour. I could go another hour. You probably want to get the hell out of here. But, uh, you know, just you were a big part of my childhood. Uh, and when I said at the beginning I hated you, I, I didn't, uh, I just, your character was so, uh, you were so mean in Superman too. But uh, it's every comic I've told I'm having you on this show is like, how did you get him? So, and everyone I told last night at the comedy store, they were like little kids, you know, grown men and women going, oh my God, I love that guy. So I really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate it uh, very much. I really, I enjoyed it. It was, it was good, man. Well, I'm a huge boxing fan. I mean, I, just as a fan, you know, to me, I grew up in the best era. You know, I was oh, born. Oh, yeah, I sure did. I mean, just in terms of heavyweights, I mean. 60s and 70s was the best era for heavyweights. I mean, you look at even the second tier guys, like a Jimmy Young. and, oh, and there, were, there, were, there were 20 heavyweights. Yeah. That today would have been world champions. Yeah. I, I mean, mean just, Oscar Bonavino. Right. I mean, these guys today, would he would have ran them out of the ring. Oscar Bonavino could fight. Jerry Quarry could fight. I mean, there you know, it's so many guys who were puncher boxers. And I mean, Zora Foley was a great fighter. Uh, I mean, who was Tate? Was it John Tate? Big, big black guy. Uh, Tate was a decent fighter. Right. He wasn't great, but he was he was he was a decent fighter. But I mean, today probably yeah, today he would have been a great fighter. Today he would have been a great fighter. You're right. He would. Yeah. Do you think the Klitschko's fall into the same uh, category that Larry Holmes did from the standpoint of I always They were nowhere near as as good of fighters as Holmes was. But I mean like Yeah, they had a left jab, that's all Klitschko has. You know, but like, has a, or an overhand right if you let him stand there and hit you. Uh, but he Klitschko doesn't like getting hit and he's awkward. Uh, I would have. I, I, I would. Klitschko wouldn't fight. Klitschko wouldn't have been in the ring four rounds with me. Right. I'd have knocked him out. I'd have broke his body down. I mean, he's so easy to hit in the body. It's pathetic. I mean, God, Joe Frazier would have killed him. Oh my God! What Frazier would have done to him would have been. I could see Frazier's left hook taking his ribs apart. Right. You know, there was uh, Ronnie would have Ronnie Lyle, knock him flat out because Ronnie would have scared him. Ronnie would have just walked right through. Him. All these guys that stand away from him and all that and allow him to get his jab on. If if I fought Klitschko, the first punch I hit him would have been an uppercut right under his armpit, and I'd have dislocated his shoulder, and that'd have been the end of Klitschko. No, I believe it. You understand? No, I'm guys not trying like to get that. you riled up. No, no, I'm just saying guys like that, you know, because they're he's 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 in essence a kind of a dirty fighter, but and gets away with it. And, you know, uh God bless him, you know, he's 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 been held the title for a long time, but they maneuvered that very well because there's not really anybody around. That That's fight. what I meant. Like uh, you know, there's Holmes. Around. I mean, uh, there's there's nobody. Uh, I've been looking for a heavyweight in this country for the last couple of years, and one day I'll find a kid that when I really put my mind to it. You know, it just it's it's they're they're there. It just they too many people don't have that hunger anymore. Right. You know, they want the big money right away. Yeah, I mean, if if I, I tell you something, if if I really could, if I if I had the time to get really serious about it, I would go back to Boston and talk to Grunt. Right. And and I would make him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he, I think, would be a world champion. 
because the, the the physical game that he plays in football, and he gets and he wouldn't get the injuries that he's and his his body's getting broken down now. He right. doesn't have it many years. He keeps getting hurt every year, and he wouldn't have those injuries. And he has fast. He's a, he's age he's agile. He's an athlete. He's got quick hands. He's and and he would be a devastating puncher. Well, as he, a Steeler fan, I hope you do get him out of the league. Well, so do a lot of people. But I mean, you know, his brother actually, I would I would go talk to. His brother's a pretty good athlete. And he's coming up. Right. His brother's a running back. And uh, but there's there's a couple people playing ball that I would actually sit down with and and uh and make him an offer they couldn't refuse. But they you see, boxing's a different sport. You gotta have that want and you gotta be able to absorb you can't be afraid of being hit. Well, that rules me out. I mean, it takes a lot of heart to be a fighter. I don't care who you are. I mean, I'm talking about Tyson. No matter, even people that don't have the greatest heart in the world that were in the ring, it takes a lot of heart just to get in that ring. Because boxing is like swimming. When the bell goes off, you're on your own. There's no timeouts. There's no, there's no replacements. Right. If you twist your knee or you break your hand, I have fought, I'll show you, all these bumps on my hands. See this all here? Right. They're from street fights. I fought 10-round fights with broken hands. They were broken before I went in the ring. No, you still look like you could kick ass. Well, I take care of business. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end the pocket. We'll just leave that out there. I mean, I, let, let me ask you this selfishly: Is if I'm 47 years old, do you think it's a little too late to get in the game? I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you see out there today, you never know. Right. Well, you could maybe I could. Uh, well, you know, I don't like getting hit. Oh, <laughs> well, so, that ends that. Right. I'm. Uh, you know, with this, my face is bad enough already. So, uh, guys, this is you know me. You've lived this is the 108th episode of this show. You know, I don't get giddy about guest i have on like this uh this was i've said it four times i'll say it another four an incredible honor uh because jack is more than just non from superman too he's an incredible boxer and an historian of politics that uh well we'll have him on when the election comes around uh i you know i want to ask him about trump but the recorder's about to run out uh but jack is from the bottom of my heart thank you very much for doing this thanks for having me man it was and ball. uh guys you know the drill this is inappropriate earl on itunes and soundcloud when i release this monday let's make jack proud he did this show so thank you guys very much, and we'll see you again real soon.